Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Entrance by Gerald Durrell My friends Paul and Marjorie Glenham are both failed artists, or, perhaps to put it more charitably, they are both unsuccessful. But they enjoy their failure more than most successful artists enjoy their success. That is what makes them such good company, and is one of the reasons that I always go and stay with them when I'm in France. Their rambling farmhouse in Provence was always in a state of chaos, with sacks of potatoes, piles of dried herbs, plates of garlic and forests of dried maize jostling with piles of half-finished watercolours and oil paintings of the most hideous sort perpetrated by Marjorie, and a strange Neanderthal sculpture which was Paul's handiwork. Throughout this market-like mess prowled cats of every shade and marking, and a river of dogs from an Irish wolfhound the size of a pony to an old English bulldog which made noises like Stevenson's rocket. Around the walls, in ornate cages, were housed Marjorie's collection of roller canaries, who sang with undiminished vigour, regardless of the hour, thus making speech difficult. It was a warm, friendly, cacophonous atmosphere, and I loved it. When I arrived in the early evening, I had had a long drive and was tired, a condition that Paul set about remedying with a hot brandy and lemon of Herculean proportions. I was glad to have got there, for during the last half hour a summer storm had moved ponderously over the landscape like a great black cloak, and thunder reverberated among the crags like a million rocks cascading down a wooden staircase. I had only just reached the safety of the warm, noisy kitchen, redolent with the mouth-watering smells of Marjorie's cooking, when the rain started in torrents. The noise of it on the tile roof combined with the massive thunderclaps that made even the solid stone farmhouse shudder aroused the competitive spirit in the canaries, and they all burst into song simultaneously. It was the noisiest storm I had ever encountered. Another noggin, dear boy, inquired Paul, hopefully. No, no, shouted Marjorie above the bubbling songs of the birds and the roar of the rain. The food's ready and it'll spoil if we keep it waiting. Have some wine. Come and sit down, Jerry, dear. Wine, wine, that's the thing. I've got something special for you, dear boy, said Paul. And he went off into the cellar to reappear a moment later with his arms full of bottles which he placed reverently on the table near me. A special gigonda I have discovered, he said. Brontosaurus blood, I do assure you, my dear fellow. Pure prehistoric monster juice. It'll go well with the truffles and the guinea fowl Marjorie's run up. He uncorked a bottle and splashed the deep red wine into a generously large goblet. He was right. The wine slid into your mouth like red velvet and then, when it reached the back of your tongue, exploded like a firework display into your brain cells. Good, eh? said Paul, watching my expression. I found it in a small cave near Carpentras. It was a blistering hot day, and the cave was so nice and cool that I sat and drank two bottles of it before I realised what I was doing. It's a seducing wine, all right. Of course, when I got out into the sun again, the damn stuff hit me like a sledgehammer. Marjorie had to drive. I was so ashamed, said Marjorie, 
placing in front of me a black truffle the size of a peach, encased in a fragile featherlight overcoat of crisp brown pastry. He paid for the wine and then bowed to the patron and fell flat on his face. The patron and his sons had to lift him into the car. It was disgusting. Nonsense, said Paul. The patron was enchanted. It gave his wine the accolade it needed. That's what you think, said Marjorie. Now start, Jerry, before it gets cold. I cut into the globe of golden pastry in front of me and released the scent of the truffle, like the delicious aroma of a damp autumn wood. A million leafy, earthy smells rolled up into one. With the Gironda as an accompaniment, this promised to be a meal for the gods. We fell silent as we attacked our truffles and listened to the rain on the roof, the roar of thunder, and the almost apoplectic singing of the canaries. The bulldog, who had for no apparent reason fallen suddenly and deeply in love with me, sat by my chair watching me fixedly with his protuberant brown eyes, panting gently and wheezing. Magnificent, Marjorie, I said, as the last fragment of pastry dissolved like a snowflake on my tongue. I don't know why you and Paul don't set up a restaurant. With your cooking and Paul's choice of wines, you'd be one of the three-star Michelin jobs in next to no time. Thank you, dear, said Marjorie, sipping her wine. But I prefer to cook for a small audience of gourmet rather than a large audience of gourmands. She's right. There's no gainsaying it, agreed Paul, splashing wine into our glasses with gay abandon. A sudden, prolonged roar of thunder directly overhead precluded speech for a long minute and was so fierce and sustained that even the canaries fell silent, intimidated by the sound. When it had finished, Marjorie waved a fork at her spouse. You mustn't forget to give Jerry your thingamy, she said. A thingamy? asked Paul blankly. What thingamy? You know, said Marjorie impatiently, your thingamy, your uh, manuscript. It's just the right sort of night for him to read it. Oh, uh, the manuscript, yes, said Paul enthusiastically, the very night for him to read it. I refuse, I protested. Your paintings and sculptures are bad enough. I'm damned if I'll read your literary efforts as well. Heathen, said Marjorie good-naturedly. Anyway, it's not Paul's, it's someone else's. I don't think he deserves to read it after those disparaging remarks about my art, said Paul. It's too good for him. What is it? I asked. Hmm, it's a very curious manuscript I picked up, Paul began. And Marjorie interrupted. Don't tell him about it. Let him read it, she said. I might say it gave me nightmares. While Marjorie was serving helpings of guinea fowl wrapped in an almost tangible aroma of herbs and garlic, Paul went over to the corner of the kitchen, where a tottering mound of books like some ruined castle lay between two sacks of potatoes and a large barrel of wine. He rummaged around for a bit and then emerged triumphantly with a fat red notebook very much the worse for wear, and came and put it on the table. There, he said with satisfaction. The moment I'd read it, I thought of you. I got it among a load of books I bought from the library of old Dr. Lepitre, who used to be the prison doctor down in Marseille. I don't know whether it's a hoax or what. I opened the book, and on the inside of the cover found a book plate in black, three cypress trees, and a sundial under which was written in Gothic script, Ex Libras Lepitre. I flipped over the pages and saw the manuscript was in longhand. Some of the most beautiful and elegant copperplate handwriting I'd ever seen. The ink now faded to a rusty brown. I wish I'd waited until daylight to read it, said Marjorie with a shudder. 
What is it, a ghost story? I asked curiously. No, said Paul uncertainly, at least uh, not exactly. Old Lepitre is dead, unfortunately, so I couldn't find out about it. It's a very curious story. But the moment I read it, I thought of you, knowing your interest in the occult and the things that go bump in the night. Read it and tell me what you think. You can have the manuscript if you want it. It might amuse you anyway. I would hardly call it amusing, said Marjorie. Anything but amusing. I think it's horrid. Some hours later, full of good food and wine, I took the giant golden oil lamp carefully trimmed, and in its gentle daffodil yellow light, I made my way upstairs to the guest room and a feather bed the size of a barn door. The bulldog had followed me upstairs and sat wheezing, watching me undress and climb into bed. He now lay by the bed, looking at me soulfully. The storm continued unabated, and the rumble of thunder was almost continuous, while the dazzling flashes of lightning lit up the whole room at intervals. I adjusted the wick of the lamp, moved it closer to me, picked up the red notebook, and settled myself back against the pillows to read. The manuscript began without preamble. March 16th, 1901, Marseille. I have all night lying ahead of me, and as I know I cannot sleep, in spite of my resolve, I thought I would try to write down in detail the thing that has just happened to me. I'm afraid that setting it down like this will not make it any the more believable, but it will pass the time until dawn comes, and with it my release. Firstly, I must explain a little about myself and my relationship with Gideon de Tédard Villeray, so that the reader, if there ever is one, will understand how I came to be in the depths of France in midwinter. I am an antiquarian bookseller, and can say in all modesty that I am at the top of my profession. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that I was at the top of my profession. I was even once described by one of my fellow booksellers, I hope more in the spirit of levity than of jealousy, as a literary truffle hound, a description which I suppose, in its amusing way, does describe me. A hundred or more libraries have passed through my hands, and I have been responsible for a number of important finds, the original Gottenstein manuscript, for example, the rare Conrad illustrated Bible, said by some to be as beautiful as the Book of Kells, the five new poems by Blake that I unearthed at an unpromising country house sale in the Midlands, and many lesser but nonetheless satisfying discoveries, such as the signed first edition of Alice in Wonderland that I found in a trunk full of rag books and toys in the nursery of a vicarage in Shropshire, and a presentation copy of the sonnets from the Portuguese, signed and with a six-line verse written on the flyleaf by both Robert and Elizabeth Browning. To be able to unearth such things in unlikely places is rather like water divining. Either you're born with a gift, or not. It is not something you can acquire, though most certainly with practice you're able to sharpen your perceptions and make your eye keener. In my spare time I also catalogue some of the smaller and more important libraries, as I get enormous pleasure out of simply being with books. To me, the quietness of a library... The smell and the feel of the books is like the taste and texture of food to a gourmet. It may sound fanciful, but I can stand in a library and hear the myriad voices around me as though I was standing in the middle of a vast choir, a choir of knowledge and beauty. 
Naturally, because of my work, it was at Sotheby's that I first met Gideon. I had unearthed in the house in Sussex a small but quite interesting collection of first editions, and being curious to know what they would fetch, had attended the sale myself. As the bidding was in progress, I got the uncomfortable feeling that I was being watched. I glanced around but could see no one whose attention was not upon the auctioneer. Yet, as the sale proceeded, I got more and more uncomfortable. Perhaps this is too strong a word, but I became convinced that I was the object of an intense scrutiny. At last the crowd in the sale room moved slightly, and I saw who it was. It was a man of medium height, with a handsome but somewhat plump face, piercing and very large dark eyes, and smoky black curly hair, worn rather long. He was dressed in a well-cut dark overcoat with an astrakhan collar, and in his elegantly gloved hands he carried the sales catalogue and a wide-brimmed dark velour hat. His glittering gypsy-like eyes were fixed on me intently, but when he saw me looking at him, the fierceness of his gaze faded, and he gave me a faint smile and a tiny nod of his head, as if to acknowledge that he had been caught out staring at me in such a vulgar fashion. He turned then, shouldered his way through the people that surrounded him, and was soon lost to my sight. I don't know why, but the intense scrutiny of this stranger disconcerted me to such an extent that I didn't follow the rest of the sale with any degree of attention, except to note that the items I had put up fetched more than I had anticipated. The bidding over, I made my way through the crush and out into the street. It was a dank, raw day in February, with that unpleasant smoky smell in the air that augurs fog and makes the back of your throat roar. As it looked unpleasantly as though it might drizzle, I hailed a cab. I have one of those tall, narrow houses in Smith Street, just off the King's Road. It was bequeathed to me by my mother and does me very well. It's not in a fashionable part of town, but the house is quite big enough for a bachelor like myself and his books, for I have over the years collected a small but extremely fine library on the various subjects that interest me. Indian art, particularly miniatures, some of the early natural histories, a small but rather rare collection of books on the occult, a number of volumes on plants and great gardens, and a good collection of first editions of contemporary novelists. My home is simply furnished, but comfortable. Although I am not rich, I have sufficient for my needs, and I keep a good table and a very reasonable wine cellar. As I paid off the cab and mounted the steps to my front door, I saw that, as I had predicted, the fog was starting to descend upon the city. Already it was difficult to see the end of the street. It was obviously going to turn out to be a real piece super, and I was glad to be home. My housekeeper, Mrs. Manning, had a bright and cheerful fire burning in my small drawing room, and next to my favourite chair she had, as usual, laid out my slippers. For who can relax without slippers? and on a small table all the accoutrements for a warming punch. I took off my coat and hat, slipped off my shoes and put on my slippers. Presently Mrs. Manning appeared from the kitchen below and asked me, in view of the weather, if I would mind if she went home since it seemed as if the fog was getting thicker. She had left me some soup, a steak and kidney pie, and an apple tart, all of which only needed heating. I said that this would do splendidly, since on many occasions I had looked after myself in this way. There was a gentleman came to see you a bit earlier, said Mrs. Manning. A gentleman? 
What was his name? I asked, astonished that anyone should call on such an evening. He wouldn't give no name, sir, she replied, but said he'd call again. I thought that in all probability it had something to do with the library I was cataloguing, and thought no more about it. Presently, Mrs. Manning reappeared, addressed for the street. I let her out of the front door and bolted it securely behind her before returning to my drink and the warm fire. My cat Neptune appeared from my study upstairs, where his comfortable basket was, gave a faint meow of greeting and jumped gracefully onto my lap, where, after paddling with his forepaws for a short while, he settled down to dream and doze, purring like a great tortoiseshell hive of bees. Lulled by the fire, the punch and the loud purrs of Neptune, I dropped off to sleep. I must have slept heavily, for I awoke with a start and was unable to recall what it was that had awakened me. On my lap, Neptune rose, stretched and yawned, as if he knew he was going to be disturbed. I listened, but the house was silent. I had just decided that it must have been the rustling scrunch of coals shifting in the grate when there came an imperious knocking at the front door. I made my way there, repairing as I went of the damage that sleep had perpetrated on my neat appearance, straightening my collar and tie and smoothing down my hair, which is unruly at the best of times. I lit the light in the hall, unbolted the front door and threw it open. Shreds of mist swirled in. And there, standing on the top step, was the curious, gypsy-like man that I had seen watching me so intently at Sotheby's. Now he was dressed in a well-cut evening suit, and was wearing an opera cloak, lined with red silk. On his head was a top hat whose shining appearance was blurred by the tiny drops of moisture deposited on it by the fog, which moved like an unhealthy yellow backdrop behind him. In one gloved hand he held a slender ebony cane with a beautifully worked gold top, and he swung this gently between his fingers like a pendulum. When he saw that it was I who had opened the door, and not a butler or some skivvy, he straightened up and removed his hat. "'Good evening,' he said, giving me a most charming smile that showed fine, white, even teeth. His voice had a peculiar, husky, lilting, musical quality that was most attractive an effect enhanced by his slight but noticeable French intonation. Good evening, I said, puzzled as to what this stranger could possibly want of me. Am I addressing Mr. Letting, Mr. Peter Letting? Yes, I'm Peter Letting. He smiled again, removed his glove and held out a well-manicured hand on which a large blood opal gleamed in a gold ring. I am more delighted than I can say at this opportunity of meeting you, sir, he said as he shook my hand. And I must first of all apologise for disturbing you at such a time, on such a night. He drew his cloak around him slightly, and glanced at the damp yellow fog that swirled behind him. Noting this, I felt it incumbent upon me to ask him to step inside and state his business, for I felt it would hardly be good manners to keep him standing on the step in such unpleasant weather. He entered the hall, and when I had turned from closing and bolting the front door, I found that he had divested himself of his hat, stick and cloak, and was standing there, rubbing his hands together, looking at me expectantly. Come into the drawing room, mister. I paused on a note of interrogation. A curious, childlike look of chagrin passed over his face, and he looked at me contritely. My dear sir, he said, my dear Mr. Letting, 
How excessively remiss of me. You'll be thinking me totally lacking in social graces, forcing my way into your house on such a night, and then not even bothering to introduce myself. I do apologise. I am Gideon de Teldra Villeray. I'm pleased to meet you, I said politely, though in truth, I must confess, in spite of his obvious charm, I was slightly uneasy, for I couldn't see what a Frenchman of his undoubted aristocratic lineage would want of an antiquarian bookseller such as myself. Uh, perhaps, I continued, you would care to come in and partake of a little refreshment, some wine perhaps, or, or maybe since the night is so chilly, a little brandy. You are very kind and very forgiving, he said with a slight bow, still smiling his beguiling smile. A glass of wine would be most welcome, I do assure you. I showed him into my drawing room, and he walked to the fire and held his hands out to the blaze, clenching and unclenching his white fingers so that the opal in his ring fluttered like a spot of blood against his white skin. I selected an excellent bottle of Margot and transported it carefully up to the drawing room with two of my best crystal glasses. My visitor had left the fire and was standing by my bookshelves, a volume in his hands. He glanced up as I entered and held up the book. What a superb copy of Eliphas Levy, he said enthusiastically. And what a lovely collection of grimoires you have got. I did not know you were interested in the occult. Not really, I said, uncorking the wine. After all, no sane man would believe in witches and warlocks and sabbaths and spells and all that taradiddle. No, I merely collect them as interesting books which are of value and in many cases, because of their contents, exceedingly amusing. Amusing, he said, coming forward to accept a glass of wine I held out to him. How do you mean amusing? Well, don't you find amusing the thought of grown men mumbling all those silly spells and standing about for hours in the middle of the night expecting Satan to appear? I confess I find it very amusing indeed. I do not, he said. And then, as if he feared that he had been too abrupt and perhaps rude, he smiled and raised his glass. Your very good health, Mr. Letting. We drank. He rolled the wine round his mouth and then raised his eyebrows. May I compliment you on your cellar, he said. This is an excellent Margot. Thank you, I said, flattered, I must confess, that this aristocratic Frenchman should approve my choice in wine. Won't you have a chair and perhaps explain to me how I may be of service to you? He seated himself elegantly in the chair by the fire, sipped his wine and stared at me thoughtfully for a moment. When his face was in repose, you noticed the size and blackness and luster of his eyes. They seemed to probe you, almost as if they could read your very thoughts. The impression they gave me made me uncomfortable, to say the least. But then he smiled, and immediately the eyes flashed with mischief, good humour, and an overwhelming charm. I am afraid that my unexpected arrival so late at night, and on such a night, must lend an air of mystery to what is, I'm afraid, a very ordinary request that I have to make of you. Simply, it is that I should like you to catalogue a library for me, a comparatively small collection of books, not above twelve hundred, I surmise, which was left to me by my aunt when she died last year. As I say, it's only a small collection of books, and I have done no more than give it a cursory glance. However, I believe it to contain some quite rare and valuable things and I feel it necessary to have it properly catalogued 
a precaution my aunt never took, poor dear, as she was a woman with a mind of cotton wool, and never, I dare swear, opened a book from the start of her life until the end of it. She led an existence untrammeled and unruffled by the slightest breeze of culture. She had inherited books from her father, and from the day they came into her possession she never paid them the slightest regard. They are a muddled and confused mess, and I would be grateful if you'd lend me your expertise in sorting them out. And the reason that I've invaded your house at such an hour is force of circumstances, for I must go back to France tomorrow morning very early. And this was my only chance of seeing you. I do hope you can spare the time to do this for me. I shall be happy to be of what assistance I can, I said, for I must admit that the idea of a trip to France was a pleasant thought, but I'm curious to know why you have picked on me when there are so many people in Paris who could do the job just as well, if not better. I think you do yourself an injustice, said my visitor. You must be aware of the excellent reputation you enjoy. I asked a number of people for their advice, and when I found that they all spontaneously advised me to ask you, then I was sure that if you agreed to do the work, I would be getting the very best, my dear Mr. Letting. I confess I flushed with pleasure, since I had no reason to doubt the man's sincerity. It was pleasant to know that my colleagues thought so highly of me. When would you wish me to commence? I asked. He spread his hands and gave an expressive shrug. I'm in no hurry, he said. Naturally, it would have to fall in with your plans. But I was wondering if, say, you could start sometime in the spring. The Loire Valley is particularly beautiful then, and there's no reason why you shouldn't enjoy the countryside as well as catalogue books. The spring would suit me admirably, I said, pouring out some more wine. Would April be all right? Excellent, he said. I would think that the job would take you a month or so, but from my point of view, please stay as long as it's necessary. I have a good cellar and a good chef, so I can minister to the wants of the flesh at any rate. I fetched my diary, and we settled on April the 14th as being a suitable date for both of us. My visitor rose to go. Just one other thing, he said, as he swirled his cloak around his shoulders. I would be the first to admit that I have a difficult name both to remember and to pronounce. Therefore, if you would not consider it presumptuous of me, I would like you to call me Gideon. And may I call you Peter? Of course, I said immediately, and with some relief, for the name of de Tildra Villeray was not one that slid easily off the tongue. He shook my hand warmly, once again apologised for disturbing me, promised he would write with full details of how to reach him in France, and then strode off confidently into the swirling yellow fog, and was soon lost to view. I returned to my warm and comfortable drawing-room and finished the bottle of wine while musing on my strange visitor. The more I thought about it, the more curious the whole incident became. For example, why had Gideon not approached me when he first saw me at Sotheby's? He said that he was in no hurry to have his library catalogued, and yet felt it imperative that he should see me late at night as if the matter was of great urgency. Surely he could have written to me. Or did he perhaps think that the force of his personality would make me accept a commission that I might otherwise refuse? I was in two minds about the man himself. As I said, when his face was in repose, his eyes were so fiercely brooding and penetrating that they made me uneasy and filled almost with a sense of repugnance. But then, when he smiled and his eyes were filled with laughter and he talked with that husky musical voice, 
I had been charmed in spite of myself. He was, I decided, a very curious character, and I determined that I would try to find out more about him before I went over to France. Having made this resolution, I made my way down to the kitchen preceded by a now-hungry Neptune and cooked myself a late supper. A few days later, I ran into my old friend Edward Mallinger to sail. During the course of it, I asked him casually if he knew of Gideon. He gave me a very penetrating look from over the top of his glasses. Gideon de Tildra Villaray, he asked. Do you mean the Count, the nephew of the old Marquis de Tildra Villaray? He didn't tell me he was a Count, but I suppose it must be the same one, I said. Do you know anything about him? When the sale's over, we'll go and have a drink, and I'll tell you, said Edward. They are a very odd family. At least, the old Marquis is distinctly odd. The sale over, we repaired to the local pub, and over a drink, Edward told me what he knew of Gideon. It appeared that many years previously, the Marquis de Tildra Villeray had asked my friend to go to France, just as Gideon had done with me, to catalogue and value his extensive library. Edward had accepted the commission and had set off for the Marquis's place in the Gorge du Town. Do you know that area of France, Edward asked. I- I've never been to France at all, I confessed. Well, it's a desolate area. The house is in a wild and remote district right in the gorge itself. It's a rugged country with huge cliffs and deep, gloomy gorges, waterfalls and rushing torrents, not unlike the Gustave Doré drawings for Dante's Inferno, you know. Edward paused to sip his drink thoughtfully, and then occupied himself with lighting a cigar. When it was drawing to his satisfaction, he went on. In the house, apart from the family retainers, of which there only seemed to be three, a small number for such a large establishment, was the uncle and his nephew, whom I take it was your visitor of the other night. The uncle was, well, not to put too fine a point on it, a most unpleasant old man. He must have been about eighty-five, I suppose, with a really evil, leering face and an oily manner that he obviously thought was charming. The boy was about fourteen, with huge dark eyes and a pale face. He was an intelligent lad, old for his age, but the thing that worried me was that he seemed to be suffering from intense fear, a fear, I felt, of his uncle. The first night I arrived, after we had had dinner, which was, to my mind, meagre and badly cooked fare for France, I went to bed early. I was fatigued after my journey. The old man and the boy stayed up. As luck would have it, the dining room was directly below my bedroom, and so, although I couldn't hear clearly all that passed between them, I could hear enough to discern that the old man was doing his best to persuade his nephew into some course of action that the boy found repugnant, for he was vehement in his refusal. The argument went on for some time, the uncle's voice getting louder and louder and more angry. Suddenly I heard the scrape of a chair as the boy stood and shouted, positively shouted, my dear Peter, in French at his uncle, No, no, I will not be devoured so that you may live. I hate you. I heard it quite clearly, and I thought it an astonishing thing for a young boy to say. Then I heard the door of the dining salon open and bang shut, the boy's footsteps running up the stairs, and eventually the banging of what I assumed was his bedroom door. After a short while... I heard the uncle get up from the table and start to come upstairs. There was no mistaking his footfall, for one of his feet was twisted and misshapen, and so he walked slowly with a pronounced limp, dragging his left foot. He came slowly up the stairs, and I do assure you, my dear Peter, there was positive evil. 
in his slow, shuffling approach that really made my hair stand on end. I heard him go to the boy's bedroom door, open it, and enter. He called the boy's name two or three times, softly and cajolingly, but with an indescribable menace. Then he said one sentence which I couldn't catch. After this he closed the boy's door, and for some moments I could hear him dragging and shuffling down the long corridor to his own quarters. I opened my door, and from the boy's room I could hear muffled weeping, as though the poor child had his head under his bedclothes. It went on for a long time, and I was very worried. I wanted to go and comfort the lad, but I felt it might embarrass him, and in any case, it was really none of my business. But I did not like the situation at all. The whole atmosphere, my dear Peter, was charged with something unpleasant. I'm not a superstitious man, as you well know, but I lay awake for a long time and wondered if I could stay in the atmosphere of that house for the two or three weeks it would take me to finish the job which I had agreed to do. Fortunately, fate gave me the chance I needed. The very next day I received a telegram to say that my sister had fallen gravely ill, and so, quite legitimately, I could ask the Tille de Ravillaret to release me from my contract. He was, of course, most reluctant to do so, but he eventually agreed with ill grace. While I was waiting for the dog cart to arrive to take me to the station, I had a quick look round some of his library. Since it was really extensive, it spread all over the house, but the bulk of it was housed in what he referred to as the long gallery, a very handsome long room that wouldn't have disgraced one of our aristocratic country houses. It was hung with giant mirrors between the bookcases. In fact, the whole house was full of mirrors. I can never remember being in a house with so many before. He certainly had a rare and valuable collection of books, particularly on one of your pet subjects, Peter, the occult. I noticed in my hurried brows, among other things, some most interesting Hebrew manuscripts on witchcraft, as well as an original of Matthew Hopkins's Discovery of Witches and a truly beautiful copy of De Mirabilius Naturae. But then the dog cart arrived, and making my farewells, I left. I can tell you, my dear boy, I was never so glad in my life to be quit of a house. I truly believe the old man to have been evil. I wouldn't have been surprised to learn that he practiced witchcraft and was trying to involve that nice young lad in his foul affairs. However, I have no proof of this, you understand, so that's why I wouldn't wish you to repeat it. I should imagine that the uncle is now dead, or if not, he must be in his nineties. As to the boy, I later heard from friends in Paris that there were some rumours that his private life was not at all what it should be. Some talk of his attachment to certain women, you know, but this was all circumstantial. And in any case, as you know, dear boy, foreigners have a different set of morals to an Englishman. It's one of the many things that sets us apart from the rest of the world, thank God. I listened with great interest to Edward's account, and I resolved to ask Gideon about his uncle, if I got the chance. I prepared myself for my trip to France with, I must admit, pleasurable anticipation, and on April the 14th I embarked on the train to Dover, and thence, uneventfully, even to Maldemer, to Calais. I spent the night in Paris, sampling the delights of French food and wine, and the following day I embarked once more on the train. Eventually I arrived at the bustling station at Tours. Gideon was there to meet me, as he had promised he would. 
He seemed in great spirits and greeted me as if I was an old and valued friend, which I confess flattered me. I thanked him for coming to meet me, but he waved my thanks away. It's nothing, my dear Peter, he said. I have nothing to do except eat, drink and grow fat. A visit from someone like you is a real pleasure. Outside the station we entered a handsome broom drawn by two beautiful bay horses, and we set off at a spanking pace through the most delicious countryside, all green and gold and shimmering in the sunlight. We drove for an hour along roads that got progressively narrower and narrower, until we were travelling along between high banks emblazoned with flowers of every sort, while overhead the branches of the trees on each side of the road entwined, covered with the delicate green leaves of spring. Occasionally there would be a gap in the trees and high banks, and I could see the silver gleam of the Loire between the trees. I realised that we were driving parallel to the great river. Once we passed the massive stone gateposts and wrought iron gates that guarded the drive up to an immense and very beautiful chateau in gleaming pinky-yellow stone. Gideon saw me looking at it, perhaps with an expression of wonder, for it did look like something out of a fairy tale. He smiled. I hope, my dear Peter, that you do not expect to find me living in a monster like that. If so, you will be doomed to disappointment. I am afraid that my chateau is a miniature one, but big enough for my needs. I protested that I did not care if he lived in a cowshed. For me, the experience of being in France for the first time, and seeing all these new sights, and with the prospect of a fascinating job at the end of it, was more than sufficient. It was not until evening, when the mauve tree shadows were stretched long across the green meadows, that we came to Gideon's establishment, the Chateau Saint Clair. The gateposts were surmounted by two large, delicately carved owls in a pale, honey-coloured stone and I saw that the same motif had been carried out most skilfully in the wrought iron gates that hung from the pillars. As soon as we entered the grounds, I was struck by the contrast of the countryside we had been passing through, which had been exuberant and unkempt, alive with wild flowers and meadows, shaggy with long, rich grass. Here the drive was lined with giant oak and chestnut trees, each the circumference of a small room, gnarled and ancient, with bark as thick as an elephant's hide. How many hundred years these trees had guarded the entrance of the Chateau St. Clair I could not imagine, but many of them must have been well grown when Shakespeare was a young man. The green sword under them was as smooth as bays on a billiard table, and responsible for this were several herds of spotted fallow deer grazing peacefully in the setting sun's rays. The bucks, with their fine, twisted antlers, threw up their heads and gazed at us without fear as we clopped past them and down the avenue. Beyond the greensward I could see a line of gigantic poplars, and gleaming between them the Loire. The drive turned away from the river, and the chateau came into sight. It was, as Gideon had said, small, but perfect, as a miniature is perfect. In the evening sun its pale straw-coloured walls glowed, and the light gave a soft and delicate patina to the bluish slate of the roofs of the main house and its two turrets. It was surrounded by a wide veranda of great flagstone, hemmed in by a wide balustrade, 
on which were perched above thirty peacocks, their magnificent tails trailing down towards the well-kept lawn. Around the balustrade, the flower beds, beautifully kept, were ablaze with flowers in a hundred different colours that seemed to merge with the tails of the peacocks that trailed amongst them. It was a breathtaking sight. The carriage pulled up by the wide steps, the butler threw open the door of the broom, and Gideon dismounted, took off his hat, and swept me a low bow, grinning mischievously. Welcome to the Chateau St. Clair, he said. Thus for me began an enchanted three weeks, for it was more of a holiday than work. The miniature but impeccably kept and furnished chateau was a joy to live in. The tiny park that meandered along the river bank was also beautifully kept, for every tree looked as if it were freshly groomed, the emerald lawns combed each morning, and the peacocks trailing their glittering tails amongst the massive trees, as if they had just left the careful hands of Fabergé. Combine this with a fine cellar and a kitchen ruled over by a red balloon of a chef whose deft hands would conjure up the most delicate and aromatic of meals, and you had a close approach to an earthly paradise. The morning would be spent sorting and cataloguing the books, and a most interesting collection it was, and then in the afternoon Gideon would insist that we went swimming or else for a ride around the park, for he possessed a small stable of very nice horses. In the evenings after dinner we would sit on the still sun-warmed terrace and talk, our conversation made warm and friendly by the wine we had consumed and the excellent meal we had eaten. Gideon was an excellent host, a brilliant raconteur, and this, together with his extraordinary gifts for mimicry, made him a most entertaining companion. I shall never know now, of course, whether he deliberately exerted all his charm in order to ensnare me. I like to think not, that he quite genuinely liked me in my company. Not that I suppose it matters now, but certainly as day followed day, I grew fonder and fonder of Gideon. I am a solitary creature by nature, and I have only a very small circle of friends, close friends, whom I see perhaps once or twice a year, preferring for the most part my own company. However, my time spent at the chateau with Gideon had an extraordinary effect upon me, it began to dawn upon me that I had perhaps made myself into too much of a recluse. It was also borne upon me most forcibly that all my friends were of a different age group, much older than I was. Gideon, if I could count him as a friend, and by this time I certainly did, was the only friend I had who was, roughly speaking, my own age. Under his influence I began to expand. As he said to me one night, a slim cigar crushed between his strong white teeth, squinting at me past the blue smoke. The trouble with you, Peter, is that you're in danger of becoming a young fogey. I laughed, of course, but on reflection, I knew he was right. I also knew that when the time came for me to leave the chateau, I would miss his volatile company a great deal, probably more than I cared to admit, even to myself. In all our talks, Gideon discussed his extensive family with a sort of ironic affection, telling me anecdotes to illustrate their stupidity or their eccentricity, never maliciously, but rather with a sort of detached good humour. However, the curious thing was that he never once mentioned his uncle, the Marquis, until one evening. 
We were sitting out on the terrace, watching the white owls that lived in the hollow oaks along the drive during their first hunting swoops across the greensward in front of us. I had been telling him of a book which I knew was to be put up for sale in the autumn, and which I thought could be purchased for some £2,000, a large price. But it was an important work, and I felt he should have it in his library, as it complemented the other works he had on the subject. Did he want me to bid for him? He had flipped his cigar butt over the balustrade into the flower bed where it lay gleaming like a monstrous red glowworm, and he chuckled softly. Two thousand pounds, he said. My dear Peter, I am not rich enough to indulge my hobby to that extent, unfortunately. If my uncle were to die now, it would be a different story. Your uncle? I queried cautiously. I didn't know you had any uncles. Only one, thank God, said Gideon. But unfortunately he holds the purse strings of the family fortunes, and the old swine appears to be indestructible. He's ninety-one and when I last saw him a year or two back, he didn't look a day over fifty. However, in spite of all his efforts, I do not believe him to be immortal, and so one day the devil will gather him to his bosom, and on that happy day I will inherit a very large sum of money and a library that will make even you, my dear Peter, envious. But until that day comes, I cannot go around spending two thousand pounds on a book, but waiting for dead men's shoes is a tedious occupation. My uncle is an unsavoury topic of conversation, so let's have some more wine and talk of something pleasant. If he is unsavoury, then he is in contrast to the rest of your relatives you've told me about, I said lightly, hoping he would give me further information about his infamous uncle. Gideon was silent for a moment. Yes, a great contrast, he said, but as every village must have its idiot, so every family must have its black sheep or its madman. Oh, come now, Gideon, I protested. Surely that's a bit too harsh a criticism. You think so? he asked. And in the half-light I could see that his face was shining with sweat. You think I'm being harsh to my dear relative. But then you have not had the pleasure of meeting him, have you? No, I said, worried by the savage bitterness in his voice and wishing I'd let the subject drop, since it seemed to disturb him so much. When my mother died... I had to go and live with my dear uncle for several years until I inherited the modest amount of money my father left me in trust, and then I could be free of him. But for ten years I lived in a purgatory with that corrupt old swine. For ten years, not a day or night passed without my being terrified out of my soul. There are no words to describe how evil he is, and there are no lengths to which he would not go to achieve his ends. If Satan prowls the earth in the guise of a man, then he surely inhabits the filthy skin of my uncle. He got up abruptly and went into the house, leaving me puzzled and alarmed at the vehemence with which he had spoken. I didn't know whether to follow him or not, but presently he returned carrying the brandy decanter and two glasses. He sat down and poured us both a generous amount of the spirit. I must apologise, my dear Peter, for my histrionics, for inflicting on you melodrama that would be more in keeping in the Grand Guignol than on this terrace, he said, handing me my drink. Talking of my old swine of an uncle always has that effect on me, I'm afraid. At one time I lived in fear because I thought <laughs> it captured my soul. You know the stupid ideas children get. It was many years before I grew out of that. But it still, as you can see, upsets me to talk of him so... Let's drink and talk of other things, eh? I agreed wholeheartedly, 
and we talked pleasantly for a couple of hours or so. But that night was the only time I saw Gideon go to the bed worse for liquor, and I felt most guilty since I felt it was due to my insistence that he talked to me about his uncle, who had obviously made such a deep, lasting, and unpleasant impression on his mind. Over the next four years, I grew to know Gideon well. He came to stay with me whenever he was in England, and I paid several delightful visits to the Chateau Saint Clair. Then, for a period of six months, I heard nothing from him, and I could only presume that he had been overcome with what he called his travel disease, and had gone off to Egypt or the Far East, or even America, in one of his periodic jaunts. However, this coincided with the time when I was myself extremely busy, and so I had little time to ponder on the whereabouts of Gideon. Then one evening I returned home to Smith Street, dead tired after a long journey from Aberdeen, and I found awaiting me a telegram from Gideon, arriving London Monday 30. Can I stay? Stop. Uncle put to death. I inherit library. Would you catalogue? Value? Move? Stop. Explain all when we meet. Regards, Gideon. I was amused that Gideon, who prided himself on his impeccable English, should have written put to death instead of died, until he arrived and I discovered that this is exactly what had happened to his uncle, or at least would appear to have happened. Gideon arrived quite late on the Monday evening, and as soon as I looked at him, I could see that he had been undergoing some harrowing experience. But surely, I thought, it couldn't be the death of his uncle that was affecting him so. If anything, I would have thought he would be glad. My friend had lost weight, his handsome face was gaunt and white, and he had dark circles under his eyes, which themselves seemed to have suddenly lost all of their sparkle and luster. When I poured him a glass of his favourite wine, he took it with a hand that trembled slightly, and tossed it back in one gulp as if it had been mere water. You look tired, Gideon, I said. You must have a few glasses of wine, and then I suggest an early dinner and bed. We can discuss all there is to be discussed in the morning. Dear old Peter, he said, giving me a shadow of his normal, effervescent smile. Please don't act like an English nanny and take that worried look off your face. I'm not sickening for anything. It's just I've had a rather hard time these last few weeks, and I'm suffering from reaction. However, it's all over now, thank God. I'll tell you all about it over dinner, but before then I would be grateful if I could have a bath, my dear chap. Of course, I said immediately, and went to ask Mrs. Manning to draw a bath for my friend and take his baggage up to the guest room. He went upstairs to bathe and change, and very shortly I followed him. Both my bedroom and the guest room each had its own bathroom, for there was sufficient room on that floor to allow this little luxury. I was just about to start undressing in order to start my own ablutions, when I was startled by a loud moaning cry, almost a strangled scream, followed by a crash of breaking glass which appeared to emanate from Gideon's bathroom. I hastened across the narrow landing and tapped on his door. Gideon, I called Gideon, are you all right? Can I come in? There was no reply, and so greatly agitated, I entered the room. I found my friend in his bathroom, bent over the basin and holding on to it for support, his face the ghastly white of cheese, sweat streaming down it. The big mirror over the basin had been shattered, and the fragments together with a broken bottle of what looked like shampoo littered the basin and the floor around. He did it. He did it. He did it, muttered Gideon to himself, swaying, clutching hold of the basin. He seemed oblivious of my presence. I seized him by the arm and helped him into the bedroom where I made him lie down on the bed and called down the stairs for Mrs. Manning to bring up some brandy and look sharp about it. When I went back into the room, 
Gideon was looking a little better, but he was lying there with his eyes closed, taking deep, shuddering breaths, like a man who has just run a grueling race. When he heard me approach the bed, he opened his eyes and gave me a ghastly smile. My dear Peter, he said, I do apologise. So stupid of me, I suddenly felt faint. I think it must be the journey and lack of food, plus your excellent wine. I fear I fell forward with that bottle in my hand and shattered your beautiful mirror. I'm so sorry. Of course I'll replace it. I told him quite brusquely not to be so silly. And when Mrs. Manning came panting up the stairs with the brandy, I forced him to take some in spite of his protests. While he was drinking it, Mrs. Manning cleaned up the mess in the bathroom. Ah, that's better, said Gideon at last. I feel quite revived now. All I want is a nice relaxing bath, and then I shall be a new man. I felt that he ought to have his food in bed, but he wouldn't hear of it, and when he descended to the dining room half an hour later, I must say he did look better and much more relaxed. He laughed and joked with Mrs. Manning as she served us and complimented her lavishly on her cooking, swearing that he would get rid of his own chef and kidnap Mrs. Manning and take her to his chateau in France to cook for him. Mrs. Manning was enchanted by him, as indeed she always was, but I could see that it cost him some effort to be so charming and jovial. When at last we had finished the sweets and cheese, and Mrs. Manning had put the decanter of port on the table, and saying good night had left us, Gideon accepted a cigar, lighted it, and leant back in his chair and smiled at me through the smoke. Now, Peter, he said, I can tell you something of what's been happening. I'm most anxious to know what it is that has brought you to this low ebb, my friend, I said seriously. He felt in his pocket and produced from it a large iron key with heavy teeth and an ornate base. He threw it on the table where it fell with a heavy thud. This was one of the causes of the trouble, he said, staring at it moodily. The key to life and death, as you might say. I don't understand you, I said, puzzled. Because of this key, I was nearly arrested for murder, said Gideon with a smile. Murder? You? I said aghast, but how can that possibly be? Gideon took a sip of port and settled himself back in his chair. About two months ago, he said, I got a letter from my uncle asking me to go and see him. This I did with considerable reluctance, as you may imagine, for you know what my opinion of him was. Well, to cut a long story short, there were certain things he wanted me to do, um, family matters, which I refused to do. I flew into a rage and we quarrelled furiously. I am afraid that I left him in no doubt as to what I thought of him, and the servants heard us quarrel. I left his house and continued on my way to Marseille to catch a boat from Morocco where I was going for a tour. Two days later, my uncle was murdered. So that's why you put put to death in your telegram, I said. I wondered. He had been put to death, and in the most mysterious circumstances, said Gideon. He was found in an empty attic at the top of the house which contained nothing but a large broken mirror. It was a hideous mess his clothes torn off, his throat and body savaged as if by a mad dog. There was blood everywhere. I had to identify the body. It was not a pleasant task, for his face had been so badly mauled that it was almost unrecognisable. He paused and took another sip of port. Presently he went on. But the curious thing about all this was that the attic was locked. Locked on the inside, with that key. 
But how could that be? I asked, bewildered. How did this assailant leave the room? That's exactly what the police wanted to know, said Gideon dryly. As you know, the French police are very efficient but lacking in imagination. Their logic worked something like this. I was the one who stood to gain by my uncle's death because I inherit the family fortune and his library and several extensive farms dotted about all over France. So, as I was the one who stood to gain, enfin, I must be the one who committed murder. But that's ridiculous. Not to a policeman, said Gideon, especially when they heard that at my last meeting with my uncle we had quarrelled bitterly. And one of the things the servants heard me saying to him was that I wished he would drop dead and thus leave the world a cleaner place. But in the heat of a quarrel one's liable to say anything, I protested. Everyone knows that. And how did they suggest you killed your uncle and then left the room locked on the inside? Oh, it was possible, quite possible, said Gideon, with a pair of long-nosed, very slender pliers it could be done. But it would undoubtedly have left marks on the end of the key, and as you can see, it's unmarked. The real problem was that at first I had no alibi. I'd gone down to Marseille, and as I'd cut my visit to my uncle short, I was too early for my ship. I'd booked into a small hotel and enjoyed myself for those few days in exploring the port. I knew no one there, so naturally there was no one to vouch for my movements. As you can imagine, it took time to assemble all the porters, maids, maîtres d'hôtel, restaurant owners, hotel managers, and so on, and through their testimony proved to the police that I was, in fact, in Marseille and minding my own business when my uncle was killed. It has taken me the last six weeks to do it, and it has been extremely exhausting. Why didn't you telegraph me, I asked. I could have come and at least have kept you company. You're very kind, Peter but I didn't want to embroil my friends in such a sordid mess. Besides, I knew that if all went well and the police released me, which they eventually did after much protest, I would want your help on something appertaining to this. Anything I can do, I said. You know you have only to ask, my dear fellow. Well, as I told you, I spent my youth under my uncle's care, and after that experience I grew to loathe his house and everything about it. Now, with this latest thing, I really feel I cannot set foot in that place again. I'm not exaggerating, but I seriously think that if I were to go there and stay, I should become seriously ill. I agree, I said firmly. On no account must you even contemplate such a step. Well, the furniture in the house I can, of course, get valued and sold by a Paris firm. That's simple. But the most valuable thing in the house is, of course, the library. And this is where you come in, Peter. Would you be willing to go down and catalogue and value the books for me, and then I can arrange for them to be stored until I can build an extension to my library to house them? Of course I will, I said, with the greatest of pleasure. You just tell me when you want me to come. I shall not be with you. You'll be quite alone, Gideon warned. I'm a solitary creature, as I've told you, I laughed. And as long as I have a supply of books to amuse me, I shall get along splendidly, don't worry. I would like it done as soon as possible, said Gideon so that I may get rid of the house. How soon could you come down? I consulted my diary and found that, fortunately, I was coming up to a rather slack period. What about the end of next week? I asked. Gideon's face lit up. So soon, he said delightedly. That would be splendid. I could meet you at the station at Fontaine next Friday. Would that be all right? Perfectly all right, I said, and I will soon have the book sorted out for you. Now, another glass of port, and then you must away to bed. My dear Peter, what a loss you are to Harley Street, joked Gideon, but he took my advice. Twice during the night I awakened, thinking that I heard him cry out, but after listening for a while and finding all was quiet, I concluded 
that it was just my imagination. The following morning he left for France, and I started making my preparations to follow him, packing sufficient things for a prolonged stay at his late uncle's house. The whole of Europe was in the grip of an icy winter, and it was certainly not the weather to travel in. Indeed, no one but Gideon could have got me to leave home in such weather. Crossing the Channel was a nightmare, and I felt so sick on arrival in Paris that I couldn't do more than swallow a little broth and go straight to bed. On the following day it was icy cold, with a bitter wind, grey skies and driving veils of rain that stung one's face. Eventually I reached the station and boarded the train for what seemed an interminable journey, during which I had to change and wait at more and more inhospitable stations, until I was so numbed with cold I could hardly think straight. All the rivers wore a rim of lacy ice along their shores, and the ponds and lakes turned blank frozen eyes to the steel-grey sky. At length, the local train I had changed to dragged itself grimy and puffing into the station of Fontaine, and I disembarked and made my way with my luggage to the tiny booking office and minute waiting room. Here, to my relief, I found that there was an old-fashioned pot-bellied stove stuffed with chestnut roots and glowing almost red-hot. I piled my luggage in the corner and spent some time thawing myself out, for the heating on the train had been minimal. There was no sign of Gideon. Presently, warmed by the fire and a nip of brandy I had taken from my travelling flask, I began to feel better. But half an hour later I began to worry about Gideon's absence. I went out onto the platform and discovered that the grey sky seemed to have moved closer to the earth and a few snowflakes were starting to fall, huge lacy ones the size of a half-crown that augured a snowstorm of considerable dimensions in the not-too-distant future. I was just wondering if I should try walking to the village when I heard the clop of hooves and made out a dog-cart coming along the road driven by Gideon, muffled up in a glossy fur coat and wearing an astrakhan hat. I'm so very sorry, Peter, for keeping you waiting like this, he said, wringing my hand. But we seem to have one catastrophe after another. Come, let me help you with your bags, and I'll tell you all about it as we drive. We collected my baggage, bundled it into the dog cart, and then I climbed up onto the box alongside Gideon and covered myself thankfully with the thick fur rug he had brought. He turned the horse, cracked his whip, and we went bowling down the snowflakes which were now falling quite fast. The wind whipped our faces and made our eyes water, but still Gideon kept the horse at a fast trot. I'm anxious to get there before the snowstorm really starts, he said. That's why I'm going at this uncivilized pace. Once these snowstorms start up here, they can be very severe. One can even get snowed in for days at a time. It's certainly becoming a grim winter, I said. The worst we've had here for fifty years, said Gideon. He came to the village, and Gideon was silent as he guided his horse through the narrow, deserted streets, already white with settling snow. Occasionally, a dog would run out of an alley and run barking alongside us for a way, but otherwise there was no sign of life, and the village could have been deserted for all evidence to the contrary. I'm afraid that once again, my dear Peter, I shall have to trespass upon your good nature, said Gideon, smiling at me, his hat and eyebrows white with snow. Sooner or later, my demands on our friendship will exhaust your patience. Nonsense, I said. Just tell me what your problem is. Well, said Gideon, 
I was to leave you in charge of Francois and his wife, who are my uncle's servants. Unfortunately, when I went to the house this morning, I found that Francois's wife, Marie, had slipped on the icy front steps and had fallen some thirty feet onto the rocks and broken her legs. They are, I'm afraid, splintered very badly, and I really don't hold out much hope for their being saved. Poor woman, how dreadful, I exclaimed. Yes, Gideon continued. Of course, Francois was nearly frantic when I got there, and so there was nothing for it but to drive them both to the hospital in Milau, which took me over two hours, hence the reason I was late meeting you. That doesn't matter at all, I said. Of course you had to drive them to the hospital. Yes, but it creates another problem as well, said Gideon. You see, none of the villagers liked my uncle, and Francois and Marie were the only couple who would work for him. So, with both of them in Milau, uh, there's no one to look after you, at least for two or three days until Francois comes back. My dear chap, don't let that worry you, I laughed. I'm quite used to fending for myself, I do assure you. If I have food and wine and a fire, I'll be very well found, I promise you. Oh, you'll have all that, said Gideon. The lard is well stocked, and down in the game room there's a haunch of venison, half a wild boar, some pheasants and partridge, and a few brace of wild duck. There's wine aplenty, since my uncle kept quite a good cellar, and the cellar is full of chestnut roots and pine logs, so you'll be warm. You will also have for company the animals. Animals? What animals? I asked, curious. A small dog called Agrippa, said Gideon, laughing. A very large and idiotic cat called Claire de Lune, or Claire for short. A whole cage full of canaries and various finches, and an extremely old parrot called Octavius. A positive menagerie, I exclaimed. It's a good thing I like animals. Seriously, Peter, said Gideon, giving me one of his very penetrating looks. Are you sure you'll be all right? It seems a terrible imposition to me. Nonsense, I said heartily. What are friends for? The snow was now coming down with a vengeance, and we could see only a yard or two beyond the horse's ears, so dense were the whirling clouds of huge flakes. We had now entered one of the many tributary gorges that led into the Gorge du Tain proper. On our left, the brown and black cliffs, dappled with patches of snow on sundry crevices and ledges, loomed over us, in places actually overhanging the narrow road. On our right, the ground dropped away, almost sheer, five or six hundred feet into the gorge below, where, through the wind-blown curtains of snow, one could catch occasional glimpses of the green river, its tumbled rocks snow-wigged, their edges crusted with ice. The road was rough, snow and water-worn, and in places covered with a sheet of ice that made the horse slip and stumble and slowed our progress. Once a small avalanche of snow slid down the cliff face with a hissing sound and thumped onto the road in front of us, making the horse shy so badly that Gideon had to fight to keep control, and for several hair-raising minutes I feared that we, the dog-cart, and the terrified horse, might slide over the edge of the gorge and plunge down into the river below. But eventually Gideon got it under control, and we crawled along our way. At length the gorge widened a little, and presently we rounded a corner, and there before us was the strange bulk of Gideon's uncle's house. It was a very extraordinary edifice, and I feel I should describe it in some detail. To begin with, the whole thing was perched up on top of a massive rock that protruded from the river far below, so that it formed what can only be described as an island, 
shaped not unlike an isosceles triangle with the house on top. It was connected to the road by a massive and very old stone bridge. The tall outside walls of the house fell straight down to the rocks and river below, but as we crossed the bridge and drove under the huge arch guarded by thick oak doors, we found that the house was built round a large centre courtyard, cobblestoned and with a pond with a fountain in the middle. This last depicted a dolphin held up by cherubs, and the whole thing polished with ice and with icicles hanging from it. All the many windows that looked down into the court were shuttered with a fringe of huge icicles hanging from every cornice. Between the windows were monstrous gargoyles depicting various forms of animal life, both known and unknown to science, each one seeming more malign than the last, and their appearance not improved by the ice and snow that blurred their outlines, so that they seemed to be peering at you from some snowy ambush. As Gideon drew the horse to a standstill by the steps that led to the front door, we could hear the barking of the dog inside. My friend opened the front door with a large rusty key, and immediately the dog tumbled out, barking vociferously and wagging its tail with pleasure. The large, black-and-white cat was more circumspect and did not deign to come out into the snow, but merely stood, arching its back and mewing in the doorway. Gideon helped me carry my bags into the large marble hall, where a handsome staircase led to the upper floors of the house. All the pictures, mirrors and furniture were covered with dust sheets. I'm sorry about the covers, said Gideon, and it seemed to me that as soon as he entered the house he became increasingly nervous and ill at ease. I meant to remove them all this morning and make it more habitable for you, but but what with one thing and another I didn't manage it. Don't worry, I said, making a fuss over the dog and cat, who were both vying for my attention. I shan't be inhabiting all of the house, so I'll just remove the sheets in those parts that I shall use. Yes, uh, yes, said Gideon, running his hands through his hair in a nervous fashion. Your bed's made up. The bedroom is the second door on the left as you reach the top of the stairs. Now come with me and I'll show you the kitchen and cellar. He led me across the hall to a door that was hidden under the main staircase. Opening this, he made his way down broad stone steps that spiralled their way down into the gloom. Presently, we reached a passageway that led to a gigantic stone-flagged kitchen, and adjoining it, cavernous cellars and a capacious larder, cold as a glacier, with the carcasses of game, chicken and duck, and legs of lamb and saddles of beef hanging from hooks, or lying on the marble shelves that ran around the walls. In the kitchen was a great range, each fire carefully laid, and on the great table in the centre had been arranged various commodities that Gideon thought I may need. Rice, lentils as black as soot, potatoes, carrots and other vegetables in large baskets, pottery jars of butter and preserves, and a pile of freshly baked loaves. On the other side of the kitchen, opposite to the cellars and the larder, lay the wine store, approached through a heavy door, bolted and padlocked. Obviously, Gideon's uncle had not trusted his staff when it came to alcoholic beverages. The cellar was small, but I saw at a glance that it contained some excellent vintages. Do not stint yourself, Peter, said Gideon. There are some really quite nice wines in there, and there'll be some small compensation for staying in the gloomy place alone. You want me to spend my time in an inebriated state, I laughed. I would never get the books valued. 
But don't worry, Gideon, I should be quite all right. As I told you before, I like being on my own. And here I have food and wine enough for an army, plenty of fuel for the fire, a dog and a cat and birds to keep me company, and a large and interesting library. What more could any man want? The books, by the way, are mainly in the long gallery on the south side of the house. I won't show it to you. It's easy enough to find. But I really must be on my way, said Gideon, leading the way up into the hall once more. He delved into his pocket and produced a huge bunch of ancient keys. The keys of the kingdom, he said with a faint smile. I don't think anything's locked, but if it is, please open it. I'll tell Francois that he's to come back here and look after you as soon as his wife is out of danger, and I myself will return in about four weeks' time. By then, you should have finished your task. Easily, I said. In fact, if I get it done before then, I'll send you a telegram. Seriously, Peter, he said, taking my hand, I am really most deeply in your debt for what you're doing. I shan't forget it. Rubbish, my friend, I said. It gives me great pleasure to be of service to you. I stood in the doorway of the house, the dog panting by my side, the cat arching itself round my legs and purring loudly, and watched Gideon get back into the dog cart, wrap the rug around himself, and then flick the horses with the reins. As they broke into a trot and he steered them towards the entrance to the courtyard, he raised his whip in salute. He disappeared through the archway, and very soon the sound of the hoofbeats were muffled by the snow and soon faded altogether. Picking up the warm, silky body of the cat and whistling to the dog who had chased the dog cart to the archway, barking exuberantly, I went back into the house and bolted the front door behind me. I decided that the first thing to do was to explore the house and ascertain where the various books were that I had come to work with, and thus to make up my mind which rooms I needed to open up. On a table in the hall, I had spotted a large six-branched silver candelabra loaded with candles and a box of matches lying beside it. I decided to use this in my exploration since it would relieve me of the tedium of having to open and close innumerable shutters. So, lighting the candle, and accompanied by the eager, bustling dog whose nails rattled on the bare floors like castanets, I started off. The whole of the ground floor consisted of three very large rooms and one smaller one which comprised the drawing room, the dining room, a study and then the smaller salon. Strangely enough, this room, which I called the blue salon, as it was decorated in various shades of blue and gold, was the only one that was locked and it took me some time to find the right key for it. This salon formed one end of the house and so it was a long, narrow shoebox shape with large windows at each end. The door by which you entered was midway down one of the longer walls, and hanging on the wall opposite was one of the biggest mirrors I have ever seen. It must have been fully nine feet high, stretching from floor level to almost the ceiling, and some thirty-five feet in length. The mirror itself was slightly tarnished, which gave it a pleasant bluish tinge like the waters of a shallow lake, but it still reflected clearly and accurately. The whole was encompassed in a wide and very ornate gold frame, carved to depict various nymphs and satyrs, unicorns, griffins and other fabulous beasts. The frame in itself was a work of art. By seating oneself in one of the comfortable chairs that stood one on each side of the fireplace, one could see the whole room reflected in this remarkable mirror, and although the room was somewhat narrow, 
This gave one a sense of great space. Owing to the size, the convenience, and I must admit the novelty of the room, I decided to make it my living room, and so, in a very short space of time, I had the dust covers off the furniture and a roaring blaze of chestnut roots in the hearth. Then I moved in the cage of finches and canaries and placed them at one end of the room together with Octavius the parrot, who seemed pleased by the change, for he shuffled his feathers, cocked his head to one side and whistled a few bars of the Marseillaise. The dog and cat immediately stretched out in front of the blaze and fell into a contented sleep. Thus, deserted by my companions, I took my candelabra and continued my investigation of the house alone. The next floor was comprised mainly of bed and bathrooms, but I found that one whole wing of the house, which formed the hollow square in which the courtyard lay, was one enormous room, the long gallery, as Gideon had called it. Down one side of this long, wide room, which would have done credit to any great country house in England, there were very tall windows, and opposite each window was a tall mirror, similar to the one downstairs, but long and narrow. Between these mirrors stood the bookcases of polished oak, and piled on the shelves haphazardly were a myriad of books, some on their sides, some upside down, in total confusion. Even a cursory glance was enough to tell me that the library was so muddled it would take me some considerable time to sort the books into subjects before I could even start to catalogue and value them. Leaving the long gallery shrouded in dust sheets and with the shutters still closed, I went one floor higher. Here there were only attics, and in one of them I came upon the gilt frame of a mirror, and I shivered, for I presumed that this was the attic in which Gideon's uncle had been found dead. The mirror frame was identical to the one in the blue salon, but on a much smaller scale, of course. Here again were the satyrs, the unicorns, the griffins and hippogriffs, but in addition there was a small area at the top of the frame, carved like a medallion, in which were inscribed in French the words, I am your servant, feed and liberate me, I am you. It didn't seem to make sense. I closed the attic door, and chiding myself for being a coward, I locked it securely, and in consequence felt much better. When I made my way downstairs to the blue salon, I was greeted with rapture by both dog and cat, as if I had been away on a journey of many days, and I realised that they were hungry. Simultaneously, I realised that I was hungry too, for the excitement of arriving at the house and exploring it had quite made me forget to prepare myself any luncheon and it was now past six o'clock in the evening. So, accompanied by the eager animals, I made my way down to the kitchen to cook some food for us all. For the dog, I stewed some scraps of mutton and a little chicken for the cat, both combined with some boiled rice and potatoes. They were delighted with this menu. For myself, I grilled a large steak with an assortment of vegetables and chose from the cellar an excellent bottle of red wine. When this was ready, I carried it up to the blue salon, and pulling my chair up to the fire, made myself comfortable, and fell on the food hungrily. Presently the dog and the cat, replete with food, joined me and spread out in front of the fire. I got up and closed the door once they were settled, for there was quite a cold draught from the big hall, which, with its marble floor, was now as cold as an ice chest. Finishing my food, I lay back contentedly in my chair, sipping my wine and watching the blue flames run to and fro over the chestnut roots in the fire. 
I was very relaxed and happy, and the wine, rich and heavy, was having a soporific effect on me. I slept for perhaps an hour. Then, suddenly, I was fully awake with every nerve tingling as if someone had shouted my name. I listened, but the only sounds were the soft breathing of the sleeping dog and the contented purr of the cat curled up on the chair opposite me. It was so silent that I could hear the faint bubble and crackle of the chestnut roots in the fire. Feeling sure I must have imagined the sound, and yet feeling unaccountably uneasy for no discernible reason, I threw another log on the fire and settled back in the chair to doze. It was then I glanced across at the mirror opposite me and noticed that in the reflection the door to the salon which I had carefully closed was now ajar. Surprised, I twisted round in my chair and looked at the real door, only to find it was securely closed as I had left it. I looked again into the mirror and made sure my eyes, aided by the wine, were not playing tricks. But sure enough, in the reflection, the door appeared to be slightly ajar. I was sitting there looking at it and wondering what trick of light and reflection could produce the effect of an open door when the door responsible for the reflection was securely closed, when I noticed something that made me sit up, astonished and uneasy. The door in the reflection was being pushed open still further. I looked at the real door again and saw that it was still firmly shut. Yet its reflection in the mirror was opening, very slowly, millimetre by millimetre. I sat watching it, the hair on the nape of my neck stirring, and suddenly, round the edge of the door, on the carpet, there appeared something that at first glance I thought was some sort of caterpillar. It was long, wrinkled, and yellowish-white in colour, and at one end it had a long blackened horn. It humped itself up and scrabbled at the surface of the carpet with its horn in a way that I had seen no caterpillar behave. Then, slowly, it retreated behind the door. I found that I was sweating. I glanced once more at the real door to assure myself that it was closed because, for some reason or other, I did not fancy having that caterpillar, or whatever it was, crawling about the room with me. The door was still shut. I took a draught of wine to steady my nerves and was annoyed to see that my hand was shaking. I, who had never believed in ghosts or hauntings or magic spells or any of that claptrap, was imagining things in a mirror and convincing myself to such an extent that they were real that I was actually afraid. It was ridiculous, I told myself as I drank the wine. There was some perfectly rational explanation for the whole thing. I sat forward in my chair and gazed at the reflection in the mirror with great intentness. For a long time, nothing happened. And then, the door in the mirror swung open a fraction, and the caterpillar appeared again. But this time, it was joined by another, and then, after a pause, yet another, and suddenly my blood ran cold, for I realised what it was. They were not caterpillars, 
but attenuated yellow fingers with long black nails twisted like gigantic misshapen rose thorns. The moment I realized this, the whole hand came into view, feeling its way feebly along the carpet. The hand was a mere skeleton covered with the pale yellow parchment-like skin through which the knuckles and joints showed like walnuts. It felt around on the carpet in a blind, groping sort of way, the hand moving from a bony wrist, like the tentacles of some strange sea anemone from the deep, one that has become pallid through living in perpetual dark. Then slowly it withdrew behind the door. I shuddered, for I wondered what sort of body was attached to that horrible hand. I waited for perhaps a quarter of an hour, dreading what might suddenly appear from behind the mirror door, but nothing happened. After a while, I became restive. I was still attempting to convince myself that the whole thing was an hallucination, brought on by the wine and the heat of the fire, but without success. But there was the door of the blue salon carefully closed against the draught, and the door in the mirror still ajar with apparently something lurking behind it. I wanted to walk over to the mirror and examine it, but I didn't have the courage, I regret to say. Instead, I thought of a plan which, I felt, would show me whether I was imagining things or not. I woke a grip of the dog, and crumpling up a sheet of the newspaper I'd been reading into a ball, I threw it down on the room so that it landed just by the closed door. In the mirror, it lay just near the door that was ajar. A gripper, more to please me than anything else, for he was very sleepy, bounded after it. Gripping the arms of my chair, I watched his reflection in the mirror as he ran towards the door. He reached the ball of newspaper and paused to pick it up, and then something so hideous happened that I could scarcely believe my eyes. The mirror door was pushed open still further, and the hand and the long, white, bony arm shot out. It grabbed the dog in the mirror by the scruff of its neck and pulled it speedily, kicking and struggling behind the door. Agrippa had now come back to me, having retrieved the newspaper, but I took no notice of him, for my gaze was fixed on the reflection in the mirror. After a few minutes, the hand suddenly reappeared. Was it my imagination, or did it now seem stronger? At any event, it curved itself round the woodwork of the door and drew it completely shut, leaving on the white paint a series of bloody fingerprints that made me feel sick. The real Agrippa was nosing my leg, the newspaper in his mouth, seeking my approval, while behind the mirrored door, God knows what fate had overtaken his reflection. To say that I was shaken means nothing. I could scarcely believe the evidence of my senses. I sat staring at the mirror for a long time, but nothing further happened. Eventually, and with my skin prickling with fear, I got up and examined both the mirror and the door into the salon, but both bore a perfectly ordinary appearance. I wanted very much to open the door to the salon and see if the reflection in the mirror opened as well, but to tell the truth, I was too frightened of disturbing whatever it was that lurked behind the mirror door. I glanced up at the top of the mirror and saw for the first time that it bore the same inscription as the one I had found in the attic. I am your servant. Feed and liberate me. 
I am you. Did this mean the creature behind the door, I wondered? Feed and liberate me. Was that what I had done by letting the dog go near the door? Was the creature now feasting upon the dog it had caught in the mirror? I shuddered at the thought. I determined that the only thing to do was to get a good night's rest, for I was tired and overwrought. In the morning, I assured myself, I would hit upon a ready explanation for all this mumbo-jumbo. So, picking up the cat and calling for the dog, for, if the truth be known, I needed the company of the animals, I left the blue salon. As I was closing the door, I was frozen into immobility and the hair on my head prickled as I heard a cracked, harsh voice bid me, Bonne nuit, in wheedling tones. It was a moment or two before I realised it was Octavius the parrot and went limp with relief. Claire the cat drowsed peacefully in my arms, but a gripper needed some encouragement to accompany me upstairs, for it was obvious that he had never been allowed above the ground floor before. At length, with reluctance that soon turned to excitement at the novelty, he followed me upstairs. The fire in the bedroom had died down, but the atmosphere was still warm. I made my toilet and, without further ado, climbed into bed with a gripper lying on one side of me and Claire on the other. I received much comfort from the feel of their warm bodies, but in addition, I am not ashamed to say, I left the candles burning and the door to the room securely locked. The following morning, when I awoke, I was immediately conscious of the silence. Throwing open the shutters, I gazed out at a world muffled in snow. It must have been snowing steadily all night, and great drifts had piled up on the rock faces, on the bare trees, along the riverbank, and piled in a great cushion some seven feet deep along the crest of the bridge that joined the house to the mainland. Every window sill and every projection of the eaves were a fearsome armoury of icicles and the sills themselves were varnished with a thin layer of ice. The sky was dark grey and lowering, so that I could see we were in for yet more snow. Even if I had wanted to leave the house, the roads were already impassable, and with another snowfall I would be completely cut off from the outside world. I must say that thinking back on my experiences of the previous night, this fact made me feel somewhat uneasy. But I chided myself, and by the time I had finished dressing, I had managed to convince myself that my experience in the blue salon was due entirely to a surfeit of good wine and an overexcited imagination. Thus comforting myself, I went downstairs, picked up Claire in my arms, called a gripper to heel, and stealing myself, threw open the door of the blue salon and entered. It was, as I had left it, the dirty plates and wine bottle near my chair, the chestnut roots in the fire burnt to a delicate grey ash that stirred slightly at the sudden draught from the open door. But it was the only thing in the room that stirred. Everything was in order, everything was normal, and I heaved a sigh of relief. It was not until I was halfway down the room that I glanced at the mirror, and I stopped as suddenly as if I had walked into a brick wall, and my blood froze, for I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Reflected in the mirror was myself with the cat in my arms. But there was no dog at my heels, although a gripper was nosing at my ankles. For several seconds I stood there thunderstruck, unable to believe the evidence of my own senses, gazing first at the dog at my feet and then at the mirror with no reflection of the animal. I, the cat, and the rest of the room were reflected with perfect clarity. 
but there was no reflection of a gripper. I dropped the cat on the floor and she remained reflected by the mirror and picked a gripper up in my arms. In the mirror, I appeared to be carrying an imaginary object in my arms. Hastily, I picked up the cat and so, with Claire under one arm and an invisible dog under the other, I left the blue salon and securely locked the door behind me. Down in the kitchen, I was ashamed to find that my hands were shaking. I gave the animal some milk, and the way Agrippa dealt with his, there was no doubt he was a flesh-and-blood animal, and made myself some breakfast. As I automatically fried eggs and some heavily smoked ham, my mind was busy with what I'd seen in the blue salon. Unless I was mad, and I had never felt saner in my life, I was forced to admit that I had really experienced what I had seen, incredible though it seemed, and indeed still seems to me. Although I was terrified at whatever it was that lurked behind the door in the mirror, yet I was filled with an overwhelming curiosity, a desire to see whatever creature it was that possessed that gaunt and tallow hand, yellow and emaciated arm. I determined that that very evening I would attempt to lure the creature out so that I could examine it. I was filled with horror at what I intended to do, but my curiosity was stronger than my fear. So I spent the day cataloguing the books in the study, and when darkness fell, I again lit the fire in the salon and cooked myself some supper, and carried it and the bottle of wine upstairs and settled myself by the hearth. This time, however, I had taken the precaution of arming myself with a stout ebony cane, and this gave me a certain confidence, though if I had thought about it, what use a cane was going to be against a looking-glass adversary, heaven only knew. As it turned out eventually, arming myself with the stick was the worst thing I could have done, and nearly cost me my life. I ate my food, my eyes fixed on the mirror, the two animals lying asleep at my feet as they had done the night before. I finished my meal, and still there was no change in the mirror image of the door. I sat back, sipping my wine and watching. After an hour or so, the fire was burning low, and so I got up to put some logs on it. I had just settled back in my chair when I saw the handle of the mirror door start to turn, very slowly. Then, millimetre by millimetre, the door was pushed open a foot or so. It was incredible that the opening of a door should be charged with such menace, but the slow, furtive way it swung across the carpet was indescribably evil. Then the hand appeared, again moving very slowly, humping its way across the carpet until the wrist and part of the yellowish forearm was in view. It paused for a moment, lying flaccid on the carpet. Then, in a sickening sort of way, it started to grope its way around as if the creature in control of the hand was blind. Now it seemed to me was the moment to put my carefully thought-out plan into operation. I had deliberately starved Claire so that she would be hungry, and so now I woke her up and waved under her nose a piece of meat which I'd brought up from the kitchen for this purpose. Her eyes widened and she let out a loud mew of excitement. I waved the meat under her nose until she was frantic to get the morsel, and then I threw it down the room so that it landed on the carpet near the firmly closed door of the salon. In the mirror, I could see that it had landed near but not too near the reflection of the hand which was still groping around blindly. Uttering a loud wail of hunger, Claire sped down the room after it. I had hoped that the cat would be so far away from the door that it would tempt the creature out into the open, 
But I realised that I had thrown the meat too close to the door, for as Claire's reflection stopped and the cat bent down to take the meat in her mouth, the hand ceased its blind groping, and shooting out with incredible speed, it seized Claire by the tail and dragged her, struggling and twisting behind the door. As before, after a moment, the hand reappeared, curved round the door, and slowly drew it shut leaving bloody fingerprints on the woodwork. I think what made the whole thing doubly horrible was the contrast between the speed and ferocity with which the hand grabbed its prey and the slow, furtive way it opened and closed the door. Claire now returned with the meat in her mouth to eat it in comfort by the fire, and like a gripper, she seemed none the worse for now having no reflection. Although I waited up until after midnight, the hand did not appear again and so I took the animals and went to bed, determined that on the morrow I would work out a plan that would force the thing behind the door to show itself. By evening on the following day I had finished my preliminary sorting and listing of the books on the ground floor of the house, and so the next step was to move upstairs to where the bulk of the library was housed in the long gallery. I felt somewhat tired that day, and so towards five o'clock I decided to take a turn outside to get some fresh air in my lungs. Alas for my hopes! It had been snowing steadily since my arrival, and now the glistening drifts were so high I couldn't walk through them. The only way to have got out of the central courtyard and across the bridge would have been to dig a path, and this would have been through snow lying in a great crusty blanket some six feet deep. Some of the icicles hanging from the guttering, the window ledges and the gargoyles were four and five feet long and as thick as my arm. The animals would not accompany me, but I tried walking a few steps into this spacious white world, as silent and as cold as the bottom of a well. The snow squeaked protestingly like mice beneath my shoes, and I sank in over my knees and soon had to struggle back to the house. The snow was still falling in flakes as big as dandelion blooms, thickening the white pie crusts on the roof ridges and gables. There was that complete silence that snow brings, no sound, no birdsong. No whine of wind, just an almost tangible silence, as though the living world had been gagged with a crisp white scarf. Rubbing my frozen hands, I hastened inside, closed the front door, and hastened down to the kitchen to prepare my evening meal. While this was cooking, I lit the fire in the blue salon once more, and when the food was ready, carried it up there, as had become my habit, the animals accompanying me. Once again I armed myself with my stout stick, and this gave me small measure of comfort. I ate my food and drank my wine, watching the mirror, but the hand did not put in an appearance. Where was it, I wondered? Did it stalk about and explore a reflection of the house that lay behind the door, a reflection I could not see? Or did it exist only when it became a reflection in the mirror that I looked at? Musing on this, I dozed, warmed by the fire and presently slept deeply, which I had not meant to do. I must have slept for about an hour when I was suddenly shocked awake by the sound of a voice, a thin, cracked voice, singing shrilly, Auprès de ma blonde, auprès de ma blonde, qu'il fait bon dormir. This was followed by a grating peal. Half asleep as I was, it was a moment before I realised that the singing and laughter came from Octavius, but the shock of suddenly hearing a human voice like that was considerable, and my heart was racing. 
I glanced down the room and saw that the cages containing the canaries and Octavius were still as I had placed them. Then I glanced in the mirror and sat transfixed in my chair at the sight I saw. I suffered a revulsion and terror that surpassed anything I had felt before, for my wish had been granted, and the thing from behind the door had appeared. As I watched it, how fervently I wished to God that I had left well alone, that I had locked the blue salon after the first night and never revisited it. The creature, I must call it that, for it seemed scarcely human, was small and hump-backed and clad in what I could only believe was a shroud, a yellowish linen garment spotted with gobbets of dirt and mould, torn in places where the fabric had worn thin, pulled over the thing's head and twisted round like a scarf. At that moment, all that was visible of its face was a tattered fringe of faded orange hair on a heavily lined forehead and two large, pale, yellow eyes that glared with the fierce, impersonal arrogance of a goat. But below them, the shroud was twisted round and held in place by one of the thing's pale, black-nailed hands. It was standing behind the big cage that had contained the canaries. The cage was now twisted and wrenched and disemboweled like a horse in a bullring and covered with a cloud of yellow feathers that stuck to the bloodstains on the bars. I noticed that there were a few yellow feathers between the fingers of the creature's hand. As I watched, it moved from the remains of the canary cage to the next table, where the parrot cage had been placed. It moved slowly and limped heavily, appearing more to drag one foot after the other than anything else. It reached the cage in which the reflection of Octavius was weaving from side to side on his perch. The real bird in the room with me was still singing and cackling with laughter periodically. In the mirror, the creature studied the parrot in its cage with its ferocious yellow eyes. Then suddenly two things happened. The thing's hand shot out and the fingers entwined round the bars of the cage and wrenched and twisted them apart. While both hands were thus occupied, a piece of shroud that had been covering the face fell away and revealed the most disgusting face I have ever seen. Most of the features below the eyes appear to have been eaten away, either by decay or some disease akin to leprosy. Where the nose should have been, there were just two black holes with tattered rims. The whole of one cheek was missing, and so the upper and lower jaw with mildewed gums and decaying teeth were displayed, and trickles of saliva flooded out from the mouth and dripped down into the folds of the shroud. What was left of the lips was serrated with fine wrinkles so that they looked as though they had been stitched together and the cotton pulled tight. What made the whole thing even worse as a macabre spectacle was that on one of the creature's disgusting fingers it wore a large gold ring in which an opal flashed like flame as its hands moved, twisting the metal of the cage. This refinement on such a corpse-like apparition only served to enhance its repulsive appearance. Presently, it had twisted the wires enough so that there was room for it to put its hands inside the cage. The parrot was still bobbing and weaving on its perch, and the real Octavius was still singing and laughing. The creature grabbed the parrot in the reflection, and it flapped and struggled in its hands while Octavius continued to sing. The creature dragged the bird from the broken cage and lifted it to its obscene mouth and cracked the parrot's skull as it would a nut, and then, with enjoyment, started to suck out the brain's feathers and fragments of brain and skull 
mixing with the saliva that fell from the thing's mouth onto the shroud. I was filled with such revulsion and yet such rage at the creature's actions that I grasped my stick and leapt to my feet, trembling with anger. I approached the mirror, and as I did so, and my reflection appeared, I realized that in the mirror I was approaching the thing from behind. I moved forward until, in the reflection, I was close to the thing, and then I raised my stick. But suddenly the creature's eyes appeared to blaze in its disintegrating face, and it stopped its revolting feast and dropped the corpse of the parrot to the ground, at the same time turning to face my reflection that I was taken aback and stood there staring at it, my stick raised. The creature did not hesitate for a second, but dived forward and fastened its lean and powerful hands around my throat in the reflection. A sudden attack made my reflection stagger backwards and it dropped the stick. The creature and my reflection fell to the floor behind the table and I could see them both thrashing about together. Horrified, I dropped my stick and running to the mirror beat futilely against the glass. Presently, all movement ceased behind the table. I couldn't see what was happening but convinced the creature was dealing with my reflection as it had done with the dog and the cat, I continued to beat upon the mirror's surface. Presently, from behind the table, the creature rose up unsteadily, panting. It had its back to me. It remained like that for a moment or two, and then it bent down, and seizing my reflection body, it dragged it slowly through the door. As it did so, I could see that the body had had its throat torn out. The creature then reappeared, licking its lips in an anticipatory sort of way. It picked up the ebony stick and once more disappeared. It was gone some ten minutes, and when it came back, it was, to my horror and anger, feasting upon a severed hand as a man might eat the wing of a chicken. Forgetting all fear, I beat on the mirror again, slowly, as if trying to decide where the noise was coming from. The beast turned round, its eyes flashing terribly, its face covered with blood that could only be mine. Then it saw me, and its eyes widened with a ferocious, knowing expression that turned me cold. Slowly it started to approach the mirror, and as it did so I stopped my futile hammering on the glass and backed away, appalled by the menace in the thing's goat-like eyes. Slowly it moved forward, its fierce eyes fixed on me, as if stalking me. But when it was close to the mirror, it put out its hands and touched the glass, leaving bloody footprints and yellow and grey feathers stuck to the glass. It felt the surface of the mirror delicately as one would test the fragility of ice on a pond. And then it bunched its appalling hands into knobbly fists and beat a sudden furious tattoo on the glass, emitting a sudden startling rattle of drums in the silent room. Then it unbunched its hands and felt the glass again. It stood for a moment, watching me, as if it were musing. It was quite obvious that it could see me, and I could only conclude that although I possessed no reflection in my mirror, I must be visible as a reflection in the mirror that formed part of the looking-glass world which this creature inhabited. Suddenly, as if coming to a decision, it turned and limped off across the room, and then, to my alarm, it disappeared through the door, only to reappear a moment later, carrying in its hands the ebony stick that my reflection had been carrying. Terrified, I realized 
that if I could hear the creature beating on the glass with its hands, it must be in some way solid. And this meant that if it attacked the mirror with the stick, the chances were the glass would shatter and that the creature then could, in some way, get through to me. As it limped down the room, I made up my mind. I was determined that neither I nor the animals would stay in the blue salon any longer. I ran to where the cat and the dog lay asleep in front of the fire and gathered them up in my arms. I ran down the room and threw them unceremoniously into the hall. As I turned and hurried towards the bird cages, the creature reached the mirror, whirled the stick around its head and brought it crashing down. I saw that part of the mirror whiten and star in the way that ice on a pond does when struck with a stone. I didn't wait. I seized the two cages and fled down the room with them and threw them into the hall and followed. As I grabbed the door to pull it shut, there was another crash, and I saw a large portion of the mirror shower onto the floor and sticking through the void, protruding into the blue salon, the emaciated, twisted arm of the creature brandishing the ebony cane. I didn't wait to see more, but slammed the door and turned the key in the lock and leaned against the solid wood, the sweat running down my face, my heart hammering. I collected my wits after a moment and made my way down to the kitchen, where I poured myself a stiff brandy. My hand was trembling so much that I could hardly hold the glass. Desperately, I marshalled my wits and tried to think. It seemed to me that the mirror, when broken, acted as an entrance for the creature into my world. I didn't know whether it was just this particular mirror or all mirrors. Furthermore, I did not know if I broke any mirror that might act as an entrance for the thing, whether I would be preventing it or aiding it. I was shaking with fear, but I knew that I would have to do something, for it was obvious that the creature would hunt me through the house. I went into the cellar and found myself a short, broad-bladed axe, and then, picking up the candelabra, I made my way upstairs. The door to the blue salon was securely locked. I steeled myself and went into the study next door, where there was, I knew, a medium-sized mirror hanging on the wall. As I approached it, the candelabra held high, my axe ready. It was a curious sensation to stand in front of a mirror and not see yourself. I stood thus for a moment and then started with fright. For there appeared in the mirror suddenly, where my reflection should have been, the ghastly face of the creature glaring at me with a mad, lustful look in its eyes. I knew this was the moment that I would have to test my theory, but even so, I hesitated for a second before I smashed the axe head against the glass and saw it splinter and heard the pieces crash to the floor. I stepped back after I had dealt the blow and stood with my weapon raised, ready to do battle should the creature try to get at me through the mirror. But with the disappearance of the glass, it was as if the creature had disappeared as well. Then I knew my idea was correct. If the mirror was broken from my side, it ceased to be an entrance. I now knew that to save myself I had to destroy every mirror in the house and do it quickly before the creature got to them and broke through. Picking up the candelabra, I moved swiftly to the dining salon where there was a large mirror and reached it just as the creature did. Luckily, I dealt the glass a shivering blow before the thing could break it with the cane that it still carried. Moving as quickly as I could without quenching the candles, I made my way up to the first floor. Here I moved swiftly from bedroom to bedroom, bathroom to bathroom, wreaking havoc. Fear must have lent my feet wings because I arrived at all these mirrors before the creature did and managed to break them without seeing a sign of my adversary. 
Then all that was left was the long gallery, with its ten or so huge mirrors hanging between the tall bookcases. I made my way there as rapidly as I could, walking for some stupid reason on tiptoe. When I reached the door, I was overcome with terror that the creature would have reached there before me and broken through, and was, even now, waiting for me in the darkness. I put my ear to the door, but could hear nothing. Taking a deep breath, I threw open the door, holding the candelabra high. Ahead of me lay the long gallery in soft, velvety darkness, as anonymous as a mole's burrow. I stepped inside the door, and the candle flames rocked and twisted on the ends of the candles, flapping the shadows like black funeral pennants on the floor and walls. I walked a little way into the room, peering at the far end of the gallery, which was too far away to be illuminated by my candles. But it seemed to me that all the mirrors were intact. Hastily, I placed the candelabra on a table and turned to the long row of mirrors. At that moment, a sudden, loud crash and tinkle sent my heart into my mouth, and it was a moment or so before I realised with sick relief that it was not the sound of a breaking mirror I heard, but the sound of a great icicle that had broken loose from one of the windows and had fallen with a sound like breaking glass into the courtyard below. I knew I had to act swiftly before that shuffling, limping monstrosity reached the long gallery and broke through. Taking a grip on the axe, I hurried from mirror to mirror, creating wreckage that no delinquent schoolboy could have rivaled. Again and again I smashed the head of the axe into the smooth surface like a man clearing ice from a lake, and the surface would start and whiten and then slip, the pieces chiming musically as they fell to crash on the ground. The noise in that silence was extraordinarily loud. I reached the last mirror but one, and as my axe head splinted it, the one next door cracked and broke, and the ebony stick held in the awful hand came through. Dropping the axe in my fright, I turned and fled, pausing only to snatch up the candelabra. As I slammed the door shut and locked it, I caught a glimpse of something white struggling to disentangle itself from the furthest mirror in the gallery. I leaned against the door, shaking with fright, my heart hammering and listening. Dimly, through the locked door, I could hear faint sounds of tinkling glass. And then there was silence. I strained my ears but could hear no more. Then, against my back, I could feel the handle of the door being slowly turned. Cold with fear, I leapt away and, fascinated, watched the handle move round until the creature realised that the door was locked. Then there came such an appalling scream of frustrated rage, shrill, raw, and indescribably evil and menacing that I almost dropped the candelabra in my fright. I leaned against the wall, shaking, wiping the sweat from my face, but limp with relief. Now all the mirrors in the house were broken, and the only two rooms that the thing had access to were securely locked. For the first time in twenty-four hours I felt safe. Inside the long gallery the creature was snuffling round the door like a pig in a trough. Then it gave another blood-curdling scream of frustrated rage, and then there was silence. I listened for a few minutes, but I could hear nothing. So, taking up my candelabra, I started to make my way downstairs. I paused frequently to listen. I moved slowly so that the tiny scraping noises of my sleeve against my coat would not distract my hearing. I held my breath. 
All I could hear was my heart hammering against my ribs like a desperate hand, and the very faint rustle and flap of the candle flames as they danced to my movement. Thus, slowly, every sense alert, I made my way down to the lower floor of that gaunt, cold, empty house. It was not until I reached the bend in the staircase that led down into the hall that I realised I had made a grave mistake. I paused at the bend to listen, and I stood so still that even the candle flames stood upright like a little grove of orange cypress trees. I could hear nothing. I let my breath out slowly in a sigh of relief, and then I rounded the corner and saw the one thing I had forgotten, the tall pier glass that hung at the foot of the stairs. In my horror I nearly dropped the candelabra, I gripped it more firmly in my sweating hands. The mirror hung there innocently on the wall, reflecting nothing more alarming than the flight of steps I was about to descend. All was quiet. I prayed the thing was still upstairs, snuffling around in the wreckage of a dozen broken mirrors. Slowly, I started to descend the stairs. Then, halfway down, I stopped, suddenly paralysed with fear, for reflected in the top of the mirror, descending as I was towards the hall, appeared the bare, misshapen feet of the creature. I was panic-stricken, didn't know what to do. I knew that I should break the mirror before the creature descended to the level where it could see me, but to do this I would have to throw the candelabra at the mirror to shatter it, and this would then leave me in the dark. And supposing I missed? To be trapped on the stairs in the dark by that monstrous thing was more than I could bear. I hesitated and hesitated too long. With surprising speed, the limping creature descended the stairs, using the stick in one hand to support it, while the other ghastly hand clasped the banister rail, the opal ring glinting as it moved. Its head and decaying face came into view, and it glared through the mirror at me and snarled. Still, I could do nothing. I stood rooted to the spot, holding the candles high, unable to move. It seemed to me more important that I should have light so that I could see what the thing was doing than that I should use the candelabra to break the mirror, but I hesitated too long. The creature drew back its emaciated arm, lifted the stick high and brought it down. There was a splintering crash. The mirror's splinters became opaque and through the falling glass the creature's arm appeared. More glass fell until it was all on the floor and the frame was clear, the creature snuffling and whining eagerly like a dog that has been shown a plate of food, stepped through the mirror and its feet scrunching and squeaking trod on the broken glass, its blazing eyes fixed upon me, it opened its mouth and uttered a shrill, gurgling cry of triumph, the saliva flowed out of its decomposing ruins of cheeks and I could hear its teeth squeak together as it ground them. It was such a fearful sight, I was panicked into making a move. Praying that my aim would be sure, I raised the heavy candelabra and hurled it down at the creature. For a moment it seemed that the candelabra hung in mid-air, the flames still on the candles, the creature standing in the wreckage of the mirror, glaring up at me, and then the heavy, ornate weapon struck it. As the candles went out, I heard the soggy thud and the grunt the creature gave, followed by the sound of the candelabra hitting the marble floor and the sound of a body falling. Then there was complete darkness 
in complete silence. I couldn't move. I was shaking with fear, and at any minute I expected to feel those hideous white hands fasten around my throat or round my ankles, but nothing happened. How many minutes I stood there, I do not know. At length I heard a faint gurgling sigh, and then there was silence again. I waited, immobile in the darkness, and still nothing happened. Taking courage, I felt in my pocket for the matches. My hands were shaking so much that I could hardly strike one, but at length I succeeded. The feeble light it threw was not enough for me to discern anything except that the creature lay huddled below the mirror, a hunched heap that looked very dark in the flickering light. It was either unconscious or dead, I thought and then cursed as the match burnt my hand and I dropped it. I lit another and made my way cautiously down the stairs. Again the match went out before I reached the bottom and I was forced to pause and light another. I bent over the thing, holding out the match and then recalled it what I saw. Lying with his head in a pool of blood was Gideon. I stared down at his face in the flickering light of the match, my senses reeling. He was dressed as I had last seen him. His astrakhan hat had fallen from his head, and the blood had gushed from his temple where the candelabra had hit him. I felt for his heartbeat and his pulse, but he was quite dead. His eyes, now lacking the fire of his personality, gazed blankly up at me. I relit the candles and then sat on the stairs and tried to work it out. I'm still trying to work it out today. I will spare the reader the details of my subsequent arrest and trial. All those who read newspapers will remember my humiliation, how they would not believe me, particularly as they found the strangled and half-eaten corpses of the dog, the cat and the birds, that after the creature appeared we had merely become reflections in its mirror. If I was baffled to find an explanation, you may imagine how the police treated the whole affair. The newspapers called me the Monster of Gorge and were shrill in calling for my blood. The police, dismissing my story of the creature, felt they had enough evidence in the fact that Gideon had left me a large sum of money in his will. In vain I protested that it was I, a God knows what cost to myself, who had fought my way through the snow to summon help. For the police, disbelievers in witchcraft, as I had been myself before this, the answer was simple. I had killed my friend for money, and then made up the taradiddle of the creature in the mirror. The evidence was too strongly against me, and the uproar of the press fanning the flames of public opinion sealed my fate. I was a monster, and must be punished. So I was sentenced to death, sentenced to die beneath the blade of the guillotine. Dawn is not far away, and it is then that I am to die. So I have whiled away the time writing down this story in the hopes that anyone who reads it might believe me. I have never fancied death by the guillotine. It has always seemed to me to be a most barbarous means of putting a man to death. I am watched, of course, so I cannot cheat what the French call the widow with macabre sense of humour. But I have been asked if I have a last request and they have agreed to let me have a full-length mirror to dress myself for the occasion. I shall be interested to see what will happen. Here the manuscript ended. Written underneath in a different hand was the simple statement, 
the prisoner was found dead in front of the mirror. Death was due to heart failure. Dr. Lepitre. The thunder outside was still tumultuous and the lightning still lit up the room at intervals. I am not ashamed to say I went and hung a towel over the mirror on the dressing table and then, picking up the bulldog, I got back into bed and snuggled down with him. Everybody dies, don't they? That was The Entrance by Gerald Durrell, and it was recommended for me to read by Alison Waddell, or Alison Waddell, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. So, Norm, it was a long one, wasn't it? Two hours and three minutes. So hopefully you've had a nice sleep, and uh, I've woken you up. There probably was an advert for those of you who aren't YouTube Premium or, you know, you're getting it for free. We pay by adverts, you know, so it may have woken you up. Um, so I'm sorry about that. But anyway, it's quite convenient because here I am talking to you. So uh, if you don't want that, just switch off. So let me tell you something about Gerald Durrell. You may know of him anyway. So he was born in Jamshedpur, which at that time was part of British India in 1925. His dad was an engineer. And he died in St. Helier in Jersey in 1995, aged 70. So this story, The Entrance, was published in his collection, The Picnic and Suchlike Pandemonium, in 1979. This title, I think for the American market, was renamed The Picnic and Other Inimitable Stories. Though I suspect that someone who didn't understand the word pandemonium would struggle with inimitable too. See, I even struggle saying them. But that's marketing men for you. Um, so... Gerald Durrell's life has been quite famously recounted in the TV series My Family and Other Animals, which sort of dates from his time in Corfu and the menagerie and his family. So he was a prolific writer as well as a, a zookeeper and animal lover. And he, most of his stuff is uh, autobiographical. He had a pretty colourful life um, and a comic fiction. And a lot of stories have animals in, a lot of kids' stories. So basically, he, he is famous on top of that. He won lots of awards for setting up Jersey Zoo. So now what might happen is we may have people offended because it's very easy to offend people, I've found. And they may be offended that animals in this story were hurt. And I would say, I was going to say until, until the end when he disclosed the terrible truth, that, you know, these are not real animals. You know, the, the parrot, the cat and the dog, never existed and also it was only their reflections that were killed so don't worry but then it turns out the monster did eat them as well as the canaries the canaries are the only ones who don't get a speaking part you know they they just kind of are there in the cages and get their purposes to be eaten notice that, that when the first we talk about the frame story but but there are canaries in the first bit as well so he, he obviously loved animals and filled he couldn't help but fill his stories with animals and I think people like that. So if we go back to his life, um, what we'll see is, oh yeah, the other thing is you might not like him because he set up a zoo. Now these days, zoos and circuses are not, not very well regarded in certain quarters, but the point being, of course, times change. And in those days, there was no social negative commentary about setting up a zoo or even circuses i think i'm not you know i'm not making a judgment i'm just saying it doesn't mean he's an evil man okay 
So he basically, his brother, Lawrence Durrell, another famous author. I love Lawrence Durrell, actually. He was a more serious author and poet. He's the elder brother. So they were middle class and British. And another thing to be offended about, they had, he had a nanny when he was in India called an ayah. And this was quite common for British people living in India, you know, of a certain class. And I guess most of them were, I mean, the soldiers and things wouldn't be, but all the people who were engineers and things. And then when, when uh, he was quite small, he moved to Crystal Palace in London. Now, I used to live quite close to there. And one of my delights was going finally the concrete dinosaurs because Crystal Palace no longer exists. I think it burned down in the 30s, somebody will correct me. Uh, but it was built for the, one of these ex- world exhibitions and one of the things they put there was what they thought dinosaurs were. So they dotted the, the park with a concrete dinosaurs and you can still come across them, or you could when I lived there. I went back some years ago and they were still there then, so I'm guessing they are still there. So, uh, and then after that, in 39, they moved, 1939, they moved to Corfu, Greece, and Durrell began to build his menagerie. And his menagerie travelled around with him at one point in his sister's house when they were moving around the world. Then, because of the Second World War, the family moved back to England, and he ended up working in an aquarium and a pet store. Um, he wasn't medically fit to be a soldier, but went to work on a farm instead during the war. And after the war, he went to work at Whipsnade Zoo. And he fell out with the people at Whipsnade. I'm not actually sure why. And then he got a job collecting animals for zoos by visiting Africa and South America and the jungles. And again, you know, be offended if you want to be. Or not. It's easier not to be offended, really, because this has all happened a long time ago. They're all dead. The animals are dead. Gerald Dole's dead. So don't worry. Don't worry. Try not to worry. And he was known for treating his animals very well, which drove him to bankruptcy because a lot of the other uh, collectors would not feed them the best and would not treat them massively well. But he did, and it drove him to bankruptcy. And then he went to Jersey uh, and uh, founded a zoo in 1959. So Jersey is one of a a number of small islands called the Channel Islands, just off the French coast, which was a possession of the British crown. I don't think it's technically part of the United Kingdom, but it's still a part of the British crown. Let's talk about the entrance, this story. So it's a long story. It's a frame story. That is, it's surrounded by a frame. So it's surrounded by two frames, actually. So the first frame is Gerald wandering in because he's known as jerry you see in the story and he goes to see his hapless but charming uh, artist friends in provence and it's gothically terrible weather so of course one of the things about this is the weather so what we see you know jumping back and forward we have the, the thunderstorm in provence we have the fog in london and then we have snow in gorge du town when he goes to the chateau so the, the weather, as in all good Gothic stories, plays a, a magnificent part in this. So he goes to them, and they're lovely, and they have something to eat. That's the first frame, and he comes back to it. You remember, he snuggles with the, the uh, bulldog in the end, So and, and after he's read the manuscript. So the first one is Gerald Durrell with his friends reading the manuscript. The next one is, uh, I don't know why this happened. M- maybe, mm, yeah, maybe it's just a device to get the manuscript, because, of course, the author is dead, having had his head chopped off. So Le Pitre, this guy in Marseille that uh, Jerry's friend collects the manuscript from. So we have Gerald Durrell, it's a bigger frame. Then we have a very tiny, slight frame of the manuscript coming into the hands of this guy, Dr. Le Pitre, um, of which we know nothing other than he, I think he collects occult books. And then we have the story itself. So the story itself um, has a lengthy build-up. So first of all, we're introduced to our man, very M.R. James. He's an antiquarian bookseller, and he travels around these great houses, usually in the UK, and uh, catalogues 
collections of books. And of course, he has a, a collection of occult books as well. Although, I mean, that's an homage, I think, to M.R. James, although he's not massively interested in the occult himself. But he has, he has, these, uh, he has them because of their antiquarian value. So this is the guy's job. And we set up at Sotheby's and he sees our man Gideon. He's looking at him. Okay, so far so good. And then Gideon turns up at his bachelor residence when he's all alone in the London pea soup and intrudes himself. With And, you know, the point is, I think some of these things are unnecessary for the story other than they add uh, a, they're little tricks, really. So he comes at night and, you, and it raises questions. Well, what's he doing? Who is he? What's he doing in this weather? And that's intended, but the questions don't really have a bearing. We find out who he is. They're not really mysterious or material to the story particularly, but they're little things. And the other thing he does, uh, he says things like, that was my gravest mistake. And some things like, if I knew then what I know now. And this is a foreshadowing. And it is a cheap foreshadowing. I do it myself. And it kind of works, you know. Um, and you, you say something. But of course, I wouldn't do it again. Or, you know, or, but I didn't know then. Or I didn't know what was to come and things like this. And it just makes the, the reader's ears prick up. But in fact, it's, it, it doesn't really advance the story any other than to do that. So those are little devices. The guy coming at haste, I don't think it's germane to the story. The, uh, these little snippets. He throws, throws about three or four of them in, in the course of the story to make you think, ooh, a little bit of foreshadowing. Not in the sense of, so there's two kinds of foreshadowing you can do. There's probably more, but come to mind. First is you can drop these little things and they're intended to make the reader's ears prick up Ooh, and they don't necessarily pay off, you know. Oh, if I knew then, and it's just general. There is no real meat to this. It's just oh. But then you have the foreshadowing when you drop um, something in and you don't draw attention to it. So this is the check of using the pistol, isn't it? In the first act, they may refer to a pistol. Oh, there's a pistol on the mantelpiece. Move on. No attention is drawn to it. And then, of course, in Act Three, boom, out comes the pistol, and we see that it was relevant. So I'm trying to think if there are any of those. I'm not sure there are. There's another thing like the key. When Gideon comes to his flat later on, when the uncle is dead, uh, he, he brings this ornate key. I, I made two, well, mm, there were two alterations I made. One I made and one I thought of making. So the first one was this ornate, this key, talks about this rusty old key, with its ornate butt. Now, when general, so butt is, it wasn't really an English, a UK English word for bottom. We would say bottom, bottom, and uh, oh, buttock. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it's become very common because we, we have our international culture these days. And so American English usage is very familiar to us now. So you can't really get away with saying a key with an ornate butt. It's just boof. The reader then is snapped out of it and is in hysterics. And the other one is about the monster humping its way over um round the mirror and i'm like mm, i think i left that in but i i uh, you know i don't wish to be vulgar but i in 2000 something i led a ghost tour of the of england it was an american party coming in and we we they were hilariously delighted by the road signs that say things like hump in the road or humps for 300 yards and things like that and it just means a bump a hump you know but of course, it doesn't mean that necessarily in American, but that isn't as common in British English, so I left it in. Also, it was hard to think of what word to, to put it in. So there you go. Um, I do very, very, very little censorship. 
And that isn't even censorship. It's just because it would have broken the flow of the story uh, and the seriousness of the scene if we talked about an ornate butt. Um, I hope you're not offended by that word. So, so he comes, and then the first, and he gets a, he gets a warning about the uncle from his pal, the other auctioneer, Edward, in the pub, and about how, uh, and then that that is a bit of foreshadowing, where he says, "Uncle, I will not let you devour me, so you can live." I mean, that's it laid out, isn't it? So I think what actually happened was Gideon resisted the uncle for many many years. So in the, at the first part, he was a decent bloke. You remember that one of the these foreshadowings that our Mr. Letterman, no, I, I can't remember what he's called, Mr. Letting, he says, um, I hope he wasn't, I hope he really cared for me then, it wasn't just a setup. Well, I think this this is actually referring to a period before, as I understand it, Gideon was possessed. I don't know how that happened, because the uncle died, Gideon was in Marseille, as is established, so had the uncle devoured Gideon and possessed him, I don't really get it, I don't get it. How come the uncle, after so many years, entered the mirror realm and became a ghoul in the mirrors? Because the inscriptions on top of the mirrors seem to have been there a while. So presumably they were there during his lifetime. But And then another thing, the guy in the pub describes the uncle as being old. And then Gideon later says he looked barely over 50. So that's a little contradiction as well. So I, I think it's just tidiness. I think if he'd maybe gone up the story again, he would have tidied it up. The writing is very beautifully tidy. You know, the writing's lovely. What he excels at is this, um, what they call Enagia, which is, he really puts us in the scene. The London Fog, we're there. In Sotheby's, we're there. We're at the French Chateau on the first pleasant visit. At, at Gideon Chateau, you remember, with the spring weather. And then in the snow, we're right there, and we're in this gothic, horrible chateau in snow. And I guess, I guess that is, you know, he's a comic writer generally. And this isn't a comic story. But he's playing with the genre, I think. You know, the piece super. So normally in a gothic story, okay, you have a castle, you, you have your person, your, your hero alone, you have a, a stalking horror. You usually have decrepit servants who are a bit weird. And this crops up again and again. But we've got him snowed in, in the horrible old castle, with a monster in the mirrors, no servants. But what he does have is some lovely animals. The other thing is, if this uncle was such a monster... How, how come his parrot and canaries and cat and dog are such lovely pets? They clearly enjoy human company and they're friendly. So mm, I think that's Gerald Durrell not being able to keep nice animals out of his story, to be fair. So there we go. So uh, what I get is I don't really know what happened, but I think somehow the uncle devoured Gideon and took him inside the mirror realm. So that leads me to say something about the end. So at the end, there's this battle with the ghoul. What I've found is this kind of thing crosses over the line between a horror story and a fantasy story. So in fantasy stories, you think of Lord of the Rings, and but, you know, there's loads of them now. Game of Thrones, The Witcher, all of these things. They battle monsters, don't they? The monsters are there, like in a horror story, but they, they are strong enough to fight them, whereas in a horror story, usually, they are not strong enough. You get things like that in Alien as well, where the, the monster is overwhelming, but there, and it is overwhelming, but there is some way of fighting it. So I think you go from horror to fantasy. That's just in my mind. And I actually think it, um, when you see the monster and you're fighting the monster, it removes some of the awfulness, because part of the awfulness is that we don't know what the monster is. 
But if we see it and we're fighting it, then we've got a, a clue. We've got it mapped out. You know, this is a monster. They hit it with a candelabra, blah, 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 blah. Whereas if we have a proper, proper horror story, the demonic, evil, monstrous force is unmeasured and unknown and it creates more of horror, I think. So it becomes a fantasy story in the end. It's just my two penneth. It's a, it's a good story. You could probably have cut it a bit, but why? You know, you enjoyed it. As I said, you had a good sleep. Um, ha, ha, ha. I mean, I, I, I'm mainly over that, you know, but, but I just do think, oh, Beethoven a thought. He looked down, there's people asleep in the audience. Or Shakespeare. Shakespeare probably did have people asleep in the audience, to be fair. Well, anyway, never mind. I am not Beethoven or Shakespeare. So, resonances. I put this in because when I'm, you know, one story reminds me of another. I don't know if you, I did uh, Angela Carter's The Snow Palace, and that's about a visitant to a haunted, snowbound house. So there's that. The Grey Woman, of course, is um, Elizabeth Gaskell, and that's set in, in, in a French chateau, in a, in a Gothic French chateau, suppose that. The Pleasure Pilgrims, which I did last Christmas, is set in um, a German schloss. It's not really a horror story, but it's got that castle thing going on. Of course, Dracula. We have to think of Castle Dracula, don't we, inevitably. And then there's um, Jean Cocteau's Orphée, which is a film. And I don't know if you know that film. It's in French. And it's about, and let me find the quote, Les miroirs sont les portes par lesquelles la mort va et vient. And as far as I'm aware, that means the mirrors are the doors through which Death comes and goes, or goes and comes. I use that idea of mirrors. I think mirrors are spooky, aren't they? You know, vampire laws full of them, not seeing your reflection. Um, there's something about it. I've used it before in a story in my, I've used it in my stories, you know, mirrors. So I think it was a good story. I enjoyed it. And thanks to uh, Alison Waddle for re- uh, recommending it. I'm going to work through all these recommendations slowly but surely. Um, here, it's a, it's a pleasant summer's day. We have been warned, we've got a heatwave warning, and I think in the south of England it's going to get really, really hot, and it's going to get hottish here. It was 17 degrees centigrade. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit anymore. Uh, it's, it's uh, I don't know, 60-something. It's actually 62 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's going to rise to top 20s maybe later today in centigrade, which is sort of eight, mid-80s, I think, in Fahrenheit. So it's not going to be too bad for us. It's actually quite pleasant. It's nice to have. I mean, I've had my coat on the other night because we live in the north, you know, so it isn't as hot here. So, but I, I feel for people down in London because it's pretty bad in London anyway. Um, I remember them reading that Paris in August actually used to go. Everybody used to go because it was so hot and people would, would take the month off. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? And in Tasmania, apparently, April Wakefield tells me, in comments, it's deepest winter, as it would be, because that's how the planet works, isn't it? So, and it's minus 50 degrees centigrade in Antarctica, somebody put up. All these things that are very interesting. So anyway, I just stay cool, or stay warm, or stay safe. Just be happy. Don't worry about stuff. I worry sometimes. I don't know why I worry. And I'm, it got me, listen, watching all the coverage on the heat wave, I'm like, oh, I start to worry, we're all going to die. Maybe we are. In fact, I think that's probably true. We are going to die. One of my projects, just to say before I finish, is I'm going to try and learn some of my stories by heart. When I used to do readings, I would stand up and read the story. And a person said to me, why don't you do it like a storyteller? I'm like, I don't know how to do it. So I'm, going, I'm trying to learn. I'm doing a course, and I'm trying to learn some of my stories. So I may 
mess about and record myself, video myself, telling the story from memory. Uh, and that'll be quite different. It'll be not only my stories. I might do various stories. Now, this is the course I'm doing. It's like a Celtic bardic course. So I may do some, you know, Celtic stories, Taliesin and uh, some King Arthur stories, but just for me to practice. And I may put them on YouTube and some people may watch them and some people may like them. If people don't like them, they don't have to watch them. And that's that. Anyway, uh, remember to spread the word about the channel if you like it. If you don't, just keep your mouth shut. Uh, and I um, hope you're all well and uh, yeah. My podcast host, Captivate FM, have recently introduced something which means I can run adverts in the podcast. I don't want you to see this as a nuisance. I want you to see this as a way that I can be funded to free up more time to produce more content for you. If you know anyone who would like to advertise on this podcast, where we currently get around 10,000 listens a week, please get in touch via the email in the show notes.